Hello and welcome to the Tabletop Bellhop Gaming Podcast, episode 146. And it's that time of the year for Back in Class, grade school gaming events. I'm Sean, and with me as always, the Tabletop Bellhop himself, Mo T. I am the Tabletop Bellhop, your cardboard concierge, answering your gaming and game night questions and striving to make everyone's gaming experience better. Remember, we record live Wednesday nights at 9 p.m. Eastern at twitch.tv slash tabletopbellhop. Now, with kids going back to school here in Ontario, most of them in person this year, I thought it'd be a good time to tackle one of our school game event questions. So today, we're going to be talking about games for a one-hour grade school gaming event. Now, after that, we've got two featured reviews today, including Hidden Games, Crime Scene, The Maple Brook Case, a murder mystery game, and a look at a prototype copy of The Red Bernouse, Algeria 1857, a historical, educational deck-building game. As usual, we wrap up with a look at the games we played over the last couple of weeks. Welcome to the Suggestion Box. Here we highlight some of our interactions with you fine folk. Lots of great comments this week, starting with Ronaldo De Luca, who commented on our Tanto Quare review to say, Do I need Tanto Quare if I have Valley of the Kings Premium Edition? Thank you for this video. Well, thanks for the comment, Ronaldo. Uh, personally, I'd say no. Unless you really dig the whole Japanese-made thing and the anime thing. While I still think Tante is a very solid evolution of Dominion, and it's got that somewhat variable market with the, the made cards a turn every turn, and then the whole chambering system, which is really cool. But nowadays, it just feels a little dated. It, it really shows those Dominion roots. Now, Valley of the Kings is a much more modern deck builder, and I think moving from Valley of the Kings back to Tonto would actually feel like a step backwards. Well, next, a comment on our Exit, the Haunted Roller Coaster review from David Hugh. Just played this with a friend and very much enjoyed it. Glad to hear, David. I'm, I'm glad this one came up, actually, because we're approaching Halloween season, right? It's it's the beginning of September here. By the time this comes out, it's a little further into September. And now's your time to do your Halloween shopping. And I think this would be a great game to play with family before, after, or potentially instead of heading door to door during a pandemic. I strongly recommend this. This is actually one of the most fun exit games we played. It wasn't the most difficult, but it just it was whimsical and it had lots of cool Halloween themed things in it. Well, next, Donna B. commented on our Code Monkey Going Bananas review to write, Colt Express is one of our favorite games, full stop, mm -hmm. and the most fun program movement game we play. It's just the right amount of chaos and control for a program movement game. Our family loves it when we end up, and we end up, when we end up punching the air and shooting no one because the movements of other players have foiled our plans. Of course, it's even better when a plan comes together. The chaotic interference, however, has led to us, led us to adding swearing to the two phrases listed in the rules, scheming and stealing. <laughs> well, thanks, Donna. I, I am personally a big fan of Cult Express myself, though I found I get mixed results. Um, some people, like Deanna in particular, don't like the randomness and chaos of it because it's a programming game. They hate the feeling of coming up with the perfect program that gets you to the right spot at just the right time so the warden moves and gets the big bag of loot only to have it ruined after the second card flip. And this is actually kind of the problem we found with Code Monkeys, though it's actually way worse than Code Monkeys. And Code Monkeys just don't even expect your program to go through. There's very little chance of it, at least in Colt Express. Though I do agree, when it does work, it does feel awesome. All right, well, next we have a number of comments on our Draconis Invasion content. Let's start with Gene Chu who writes, I really like this game. I'm a fan of the deck building mechanic. Hmm. I have a number of them myself and played a bunch more. 
What I like from deck builders is a new way to challenge my deck building skills. Draconis Invasion is a deck builder that has some twists in how you build your deck. You need to put money in your deck to buy cards. You also need money in your deck to use some of your cards. Mm -hmm. I find this creates an interesting deck building challenge to balance the money as well as other cards. I also like the fact that you're using your deck to attack enemies in order to score points. One thing I find is there is more to keep track of than most other deck builders. You have to defeat enemies and may need to go after specific ones depending on what combo you need as well to score more points. I have the Kickstarter version that adds additional stuff you have to keep track cool. of as well. Interesting. Speaking of uh, deck builders that have more things to keep yeah, track we'll, of. Yeah, we'll be talking Stick more around about that for later. our review later in the show, which I didn't think of because I put this in the notes before I had actually copied over the review. But yeah, if you want a deck builder with more interesting things going on, stick around to our second review. Well, next we have Chris Groff, who writes, good review. I like the pruning a card is an actual mm -hmm. action. That's a nice twist. The event deck sounds neat too. From your review, it really sounds like the game needs a couple of expansions to fill it out. And based on the box, it sounds like they were planning for them already. Mm -hmm. Playing six out of the box is also neat, which puts it in a pretty rare group for deck builders, as most are designed with two in mind and some can support four. Off the top of my head, the only other deck builder that can support six is Clank with the Adventuring Party expansion, and that's a hybrid already, and also one of my favorite games. From what you get, $75 also seems pretty steep when compared with other deck building games for the base set, and honestly, that price point alone would stop me from buying it. I was curious, and I currently don't see it listed at any of my local stores. Is this a Kickstarter-only release currently? And finally, Jeff Lai, the actual designer of the game, caught our content and wrote to say, Hey, just caught up on your vids. Enjoyed it. Wanted to let you know that you're correct, that the square cards were awkward in the first printing, and we expect the foam to creatively hold them. In the second printing and expansion, we included a cloth bag that helps keep them in place. I admit, I should have made it clear somewhere. Thanks for the honest and positive review. I laughed out loud with your comments and criticisms. Many were spot on. Why did we just print the card effects in the rules? Off out loud, I never thought of that issue before. Well, thanks everyone for the very positive comments, especially Jeff. Again, we say this all the time, but we love it when designers actually take the time to check out what we published. So the bag is for the square cards, I guess. Somehow you tuck them in there so they don't get damaged. I, I'm going to keep using that bag for Adventuria. It worked rather well. So we'll be using it for a different game. <laughs> now, regarding Chris's comment about availability. So Draconis Invasion isn't new. So I had a lot of people like, oh, I never heard of this game. It looks great. I want to check it out. Well, actually, it's older. It was published in 2016. And at the time I wrote the review, you could still buy it. Like it was available on Amazon and um, Board Game Bliss and a few online stores. But since then, maybe due to our review, it seems to be out of stock everywhere. Now, the thing is, Jeff, I and Keji Games just did another Kickstarter. This was for the Wrath expansion. And part of that, and the funding for that, was another print run of the base game. So right now, the problem is the game isn't out of print, it's just out of stock. It's between printings. And with all the shipping issues going on in the world right now, I have no idea when you'll actually be able to get a copy of this again. Now, what I do know you can do is you can go over to the Draconis Invasion website, which is just draconisinvasion.com, and you can get both the core game and expansion. You can pre-order them now. Even better, they're on sale right now. So Jeff's, or, or sorry, uh, Chris's concern about 75 Canadian is out the window because they actually are on sale right now. And I actually took the time to send Chris a link to it. So I thought that would be 
be worth checking out. Now, as for getting it now, as far as I know, that's the only place you can get it. Like, I looked around with, with uh, Tabletop Deals account on Twitter. I'm looking at these games all the time. Like, yes, there's copies on, like, Etsy. There's some people on Board Game Geek selling it. But honestly, I'd just say be patient. It'll be back into online game stores soon enough. Go talk to your local game store. That's probably your best bet. Go to your local game store and say, hey, get this in. Contact these people. Pre-order a copy. Get it into the store. That way you support them as well. And I have to say, I really kind of agree with Chris on the the price point. It's yeah. it's a it's a steep one for the amount of content you get. So if you can get it on sale, absolutely go for it. Now on to a big one. We got a number of comments on our topic of ugly games that play great on our last show, and here are some highlights. Scott W writes, "Deus, one of my favorites, but its color palette is just mm. awful." Yeah, Deus, love the game, the tableau building. But those colors are awful. Great suggestion, Scott. Uh, I honestly have no idea what they were thinking with that board. It's like, it looks like you're playing some kind of abstract game. Well, Phil Hatfield writes, a game I would mention that I have had a lot of fun with and feel its longevity lends itself to being a really good game is Acquire. Mm -hmm. The most bland board and just numbered lettered tiles to represent hotels. Yet it is very fun and enjoyable and is always the best money-centered game over such staples of family game like Monopoly or even more modern games. Yeah, Phil's not wrong here. Uh, the components in Acquire make it look like a tile-placing game, not an economic real estate game, which it actually is. Some editions do look better than others, but none of them really look good. Now, Chris Groff again notes, Tyrants of the Underdark definitely suffered from its visual presentation and components looking forward to the remake. Another one I might add to that list is Dune Imperium. Personally, I don't have an issue with the artwork, but cards look good, the iconography makes sense, and I think the board, while perhaps not great, looks fine. However, there were a lot of people grumbling about the artwork for the game. Yeah, Tyrants made our list, for sure. Um, personally, I haven't had a chance to check out Dune, nor have I actually seen a lot of complaints online, but I'll toss it on our list so that people can check it out if they want to make their own judgment. Now, Jay Behrens writes, Beyond the Sun, the box art is ugly, the game boards, etc. are meh, but the game itself is great. Well, thanks for the comment, Jay. I gotta say, Rio Grande games, I, I, I swear they're stuck back in the early 2000s. Like, I can immediately look at a game and be like, oh, that's probably a Rio Grande game. Like, they, their games they are putting out now look like their games they put out then. Which I guess maybe is a good brand thing, but I think most of the board game industry has moved away from browns and bland colors and wooden cubes. Well, Raf Maza Lysan was an early Kickstarter. Kind of a warrior knights game. Or sorry, Ralph says, Maza Lysan. Lysan. No, no, Ralph Maza. Ralph Maza says, Lysan was an early Kickstarter. Kind of a warrior knights game. It could, should have been beautiful, but the designer apparently didn't know how to prepare color files for printing rather than screen. And everything came out so murky and muddy that the game was all but unplayable. Yeah, we've definitely seen this one. Uh, sorry about the mispronunciation there. I should have put a comma because, yes, that could easily be a name. Ralph Mazalizen. Um, We have definitely noticed this. Uh, Sean and I have commented this on the past of a couple of the... Um, Indie games we've done or, or prototypes we've looked at have had this problem. Most recently, when we were playing Stratos Light and Darkness, the dark sides forces were almost impossible to see. And I got to say, we had some this issue also with uh, Draconis Invasion as well. Though none of these were at the unplayable level. They're just darker than you would have liked. 
Yeah, there, there's there's definitely a, a trick to learning how to do four color print versus RGB for screen. And mm -hmm. if you don't know how, seek help before you send to print or talk to your printer because they'll often uh, help you right through that. They are always good about that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. All right. Uh, finally, Keith J. Davies writes, I'd also suggest Ingenious. Great game by Renier Nitzia, but visually, meh. Uh, that, uh, sorry to say I don't agree with you here, Keith. The, the thing is, it's an abstract tile laying game. It looks like an abstract tile laying game. Like, like, how do you make it look better? Like, honestly, it looks better than most abstract tile games. It at least has nice 3D plastic tiles, and the patterns are very clear to see, and they're differentiated both by color and shape to help with color blindness. Like, I honestly can't think of how I'd make Ingenious look better. Like, maybe if you gave it a theme. Like, now you're fantasy races, and you're trying to control areas of a map, and maybe you're going to put minis out on the board or something, but I actually think that's going to make the game less playable, though it might look better. Now, yes, I will say the board could be improved just by differentiating the two colors because there's two colors of gray and it's one you use the inside of the board you only use the outside if you're playing with more players so yeah that could be a little bit more contrast but that's it although i will say if you could give me an upward style board with the tiles actually slot in so they can't be bumped that would be awesome but to me that's 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 a little bit more about blinging the game out i honestly can't agree with you on this one keith like ingenious to me looks like ingenious should well, that's it for this week's comments. Send your feedback to mo at tabletopbellhop.com or hit us up on social media. We're here to answer your game, gaming, and game night questions. So yesterday, when I sat down to work on the show notes for the show, it was the first day of school here in Ontario for high schools and grade schools. And I thought it would be a good time to cover one of the various school gaming questions we've saved up over the last couple of years, for obvious reasons. With most kids actually heading back in person, I fear it was probably worth dusting one of these older questions off now that they're applicable yet again. Tonight's question comes from Tabletop Bellhop patron Yuho Rutila, who writes, I was tasked to run a board game session for one hour in a school event. There were six players from first grade to fourth grade, and I had no idea how much they have played before. What kinds of games would you make them play? Would you try cramming lots of games into one hour or one longer game? How much help should you give these kids playing against each other? I ended up running My Little Scythe, and we got through it just in one hour, thanks to my daughter, who knew how to win fast enough, <laughs> and all the players were in the same game. They were quiet, but that might be mostly because no they didn't know me personally. I tried to give them hints by reminding them of rules in certain situations that fit into their playing position. Well, thanks so much for the great question and support of the show, Yuho. I also want to thank you for taking the initiative to game with kids in school. Hopefully you weren't forced to do this. You kind of volunteered for it. But I think gaming is a great educational and social tool that I wish more schools utilized. Indeed. I think many schools are still stuck in the Milton Bradley roll and move mindset. And aside from some games you can pick up at Scholar's Choice and other teacher-oriented educational stores, they may just not be aware of the wealth of fun and educational opportunities in the board game hobby. So before we dive into actual recommendations of the kind of games I would bring to an event like this, I want to discuss a few things. So first off, I want to point some people to some of our older content. Um, for example, I have an article called Raising the Next Generation of Tabletop Gamers that talks about how to start gaming with kids. And episode 39 of our podcast called The Next Generation, which also talks about gaming with kids. 
Then there's another article called Some of the Best Kids Board Games and How to Get Your Kids to Play Them, which has some great tips to get kids excited about gaming, which again was talked about on our podcast, this time episode 20, which was called Child's Play Part Number 2. And also, you can jump onto the blog in the search and just type kids games, and you'll have all kinds of articles about kids games. We've talked about kids games many times, basically going from my own personal experience raising a couple of young gamers who are now ones into high school as of yesterday, and the other ones finishing up grade school pretty soon. So we do have a back catalog on this topic, and I do encourage people to check it out. Now, so you don't lose you for the whole thing, we are going to cover some of the key aspects that were mentioned in those previous episodes tonight. So the first of that is all kids are different. What's easy for one kid could be difficult for another, and often that has nothing to do with age. Due to this, you should always have multiple options available and backup plans for when things go south. Realize that every kid showing up is going to be different from every other kid, and not all kids are the same, and a game that works for one won't necessarily work for another. Yeah, and this can be so important for the, those larger group events even compared to this one uh, with only a few kids. That one game or even one type of game that you ha- might have several of might not be right for all who show up and you don't want them tuning out and just drifting off into some other thought process. Yeah. Yep. Also, remember, games are meant to be fun. But remember that more than usual, right? Like, like this is especially true when playing with kids, especially in grade school, looking at the earlier grades. Don't worry about being strict and stringent with the rules. We don't want rule lawyers here. At least the first few sessions. As long as the kids are having fun, let them run with whatever they're doing, which may be something very far from the actual rules of the game. Don't try to enforce structured play right away, especially with younger kids. If they just want to crack open animal upon animal and dump the meeples on the floor and play around with them as animals, all the power to them. And in that same vein, watch out for kids who are rules lawyers, kids whose parents might be gamers and they may be all really familiar with some of these games. If everyone is having fun, don't let one of that one kid who knows this game and, and has played it a thousand times ruin it for the others who may not know or even care about it. Explain to that kid why you're doing what you're doing and why it's okay to be doing whatever it may be, even if that's not in the rules. So I kind of feel some of that might have been directed at my kids, though John has a game with them. But we have had this problem with my kids because we have taught the kids a variety of games. And I will admit my oldest, when she shows up to a gaming event, if the kids aren't playing right, she's like, no, that's not how you play. So we did have to sit down and talk to her about that. Uh, the thing is, too, is is help them out with the rules, right? You you want to you want to be part of it and make sure they're having fun. But like, don't force it right away. Like, like eventually you'll get there. Because this is being done at a school, right? So you want it to be fun. You want it to be fun in games, but you also want it to be a learning experience. Here you have a chance to mold, to teach lessons of sportsmanship, being a gracious winner and not being a poor loser, taking turns properly, working together and cooperating, and playing with structure. Especially for young kids, they're used to just free-form imaginative play. This is a way to slowly introduce structured play. If this is going to be a recurring event, what I would do is slowly add in the rules, right? Like the first night, everyone's just having fun playing with the piece. As long as everyone's having fun, great. Maybe you play a game in the corner for the kids that want to take it seriously. But then the next time you're like, oh, now that you're playing with the animals, how about you try to start stacking them? Let's see who can stack them higher. And then the next time you play, okay, now we're going to roll the die and everyone's going to, or sorry, everyone's going to get their own animals and we're going to roll a die to see who places what. And then eventually teach them the full rules, right? Teach that structure as time goes on. Let them play with the, the components first ending with everyone playing the games by the book. 
Yeah, we talk about video game tutorials all the time and how more board games should look to them for inspiration. You can make that happen if you add the rules or parts of the game mm -hmm. week by week or, or, or bit by bit, depending on how often you're doing this or how much time you have. Now, you also asked about um, teaching the games and helping the kids. Definitely help. Like, like, especially at the start. Go in, teach them how to play, take turns for them, but don't take away their agency. That is one of the biggest things that parents have a habit of doing to kids that, that I, I don't know, in a way is harmful. I'll use the term harmful. No, I am not a child psychologist nor an educator. But you want kids to have their own agency. So, yes, tell them what the proper rule is and tell them, like, if they're going to make a bad move, maybe you stop them and say, well, you might not want to do that. And this is why. But if you want to see what happens for doing that, feel free. So don't take away the agency, but you do want to coach and guide. Absolutely. So now. No, yep. Sorry. So as for Yuho's question about one long game or multiple short ones, personally, I'd go for short ones that can be played multiple rounds and still be fun. Saving longer, more complicated games, like My Little Scythe, um, that wouldn't have even been on my radar, for uh, for a later event, when everyone has more experience and is more comfortable with each other and are now past that point of, of just goofing around and having fun and sitting down and playing games. Because I think that way, you want to play one of those games, like you play it and you get that again, and you play again and again, and get that to fill an hour. I think it's going to be way more satisfying for more kids. Plus, it's there's gaps in between so people can leave. So if a kid does get bored or they're not having fun or maybe they lost and they're having a hard time handling that, or there's a kid who won who's just going around being a little crazy about the fact they won the game and make fun of the kids, there's there's a break there between the games. Whereas if you're playing one long game, you don't have that chance for people to back out. So I strongly recommend multiple shorter ones until your group's well-established. Yeah. And, and also, it's really good to have flexible length games like Codenames Duet or other party style games with loose or limited scoring that can be a real blessing in uh, situations like this, yeah. especially when you're getting down to that end and you want to get some more time. You've got some more time, but not maybe enough to get a full game of X or Y in, throw Codenames down and you're good to go. Now, what I'm not sure on, uh, this is, this is I, I, I just have my experience as a parent myself. Again, I'm not an educator or a child psychologist or anything, is I actually don't know what you should do for availability of choice. Like, as someone who hosts public play events, if, if I'm thinking of a gaming event at a local game store with kids attending, I want to have a few different games for the kids to pick from. Like, I, I want variety. Every time I go to the game store to run an event, I bring 10 times, well, not 10, maybe five times more games than I need. And I know I'm not going to get them all played, but they're there in case anyone wants to play them or in case we change our mind. And that's how I, my immediate response is, I want to bring a pile of like five, six games and let the kids pick. But I can totally see this being a problem with kids. Because you're going to have some kids that want to play that one and some that want to play that one. And someone's going to have bad feelings if we don't play the game they wanted to play. And I could see that leading to arguments and hurt feelings. So I don't know the proper answer here. Like, uh, is obviously in an educational environment. Maybe he'd know better. Like, maybe start off with no options. Like, the first game night, we're just going to sit together and play something very light and easy. Maybe a card game. Maybe even something like Uno. Just to get everyone playing together and get to know their names. And then maybe as you start playing... More games, bring two games the next week and let people vote or or decide, let the kids decide, hey, next week we're going to play this or that. What do you all want to play or something like that? So I have to say for me, uh, going in with a firm plan is the better option. Again, I'm not an educator or a child psychologist either, but for me, my, my gut tells me going with a plan 
and introducing several games to the kids one at a time, letting them get a feel for them, learn them. And then only once they understand a few of these games, then if you're getting the vibe that things aren't going to go south, then let the voting sort uh, happen. Now, if you're the teacher or have a teacher available, that person is often able to help out with some of the group dynamics and they're right. going to be quicker to catch that one student who's going to be isolated or getting isolated by the group. And they may even already know how these cliques pay, play out and you can sort of steer around, uh, you know, kids getting left out. Yep. Very fair. As for player count, one game everyone can play is great, but probably isn't going to be feasible, especially once you get beyond six players. Now, the problem with multiple games is you need someone to, to moderate each game. Uh, assuming Yuho is the only adult supervising here, there's just one teacher there. That could be a problem, at least at first. Now, shortly after the first session, if I was the one running this event, I would be looking for the stando kids, the ones who seem to be good at game teachers, the ones who pick it up right away, or the ones that actually knew the game before the event started. And then I would try to work with them so that they can act independently and take a group of their own to play the game. Until then, you're probably going to be stuck with one big group, which will limit you as far as game selection. Now, something else you can do is have... Um, no, never mind. Now, We're good. Now, multiple copies of a game here could be a lifesaver or games that can accommodate teams or large groups to work with at the beginning and then break off into those groups. Once that's rolling to learn other player, uh, learn ga other games with smaller player counts. Yeah. The other thing you can do too is team up, team up kids so that you have a, a smaller, like, you're playing a small player count game, but with more people than it's required on the box, right? You don't have to listen to the player count on the box. Uh, what I would recommend is teaming up an older kid with a younger kid, right? And have it so that the one can guide the other. And the younger kid moves the pieces on the board and does the things, but the older kid helps with decisions or something like that. That is a great way to make a small player count game accommodate a larger group. So those were the main things I thought of stuff we brought up in the past, maybe some new stuff mixed in here. Do you have anything else you wanted to add in? No, I think that that pretty much uh, gets us a good place to start. All right, well, let's move on to some game suggestions. These are some games that we think could be great for a grade school board game event. Now, due to the fact that we're dealing with a grade school and dealing with kids from grade one up to grade five or six in some areas and up to grade eight, in others, we put these games into groups based on things like the skills required to play. Hmm. We're going to start off with cooperative games. Cooperative games are perfect for these kinds of events because they let the kids work together to win and avoid any issues due to competition. Everyone wins or loses. Cooperative games also have the advantage that shy or uncomfortable kids can fade into the background and the adults or adult uh, and the adult or adults can help without giving the player they are helping any advantage over the others. Mm -hmm. They also let the younger kids play with the older kids all in the same game. And when we start talking about cooperative kid games on the Tabletop Bellhop Gaming Podcast, you know that my number one recommendation is always going to be Ghost Fighting Treasure Hunters, which now that I finally have it, gets even better with the Creepy Cellar expansion. 
Now, the only disadvantage of this ghost hunting game is that it only plays four players. So you might want more than one copy of the game or break off into teams with multiple players controlling each character. Maybe one player making the moves, the other making the decision. Or you have helpers, someone who flips the ghost cards. Like if you need to throw in, like if you need a fifth player, just have one player play the ghosts. All they do is flip the cards and put the ghosts out. Trust me, a kid will love doing that. Just being able to put the spooks out and then they're going to feel like they win if the other players lose. And it almost turns the game into a one versus many game. This is a fantastic, it's a roll and move game, still good despite it, great components. The only thing I would recommend is you actually try to find the actual version of Ghost Fight and Treasure Hunters just because there is an expansion. There is also a Ghostbusters version, but the production quality is not as good. Though, if you got some Ghostbuster fanatics in your classroom, maybe you should consider that one as well. And that was Ghost Fight and Treasure Hunters. Next, I have Robot Turtles. This is an excellent STEM programming game perfect for a school setting. Now, again, this only comes with enough turtles for four players, but there's no reason multiple kids can't work together to code one robot, right? This is the red turtle team and the yellow turtle team and the blue turtle team. While it's more work on the part of the person running the event, the best part about this game is making up your own programs and scenarios. In a school atmosphere, I can actually see making this game huge. What I would probably do is use it as like a source book. And I would get the rules and I'd read them and I'd look at the boards, but then I would make a school version. I would put a huge grid either on the floor or up on the board. And then I'd make my own versions of the cards and then set up rally races and battle royals and things where a whole classroom can play. Using this as as a, a, a bridge to bring the game to way more than is in the box. I think this would be a fantastic teaching tool. And back when I was learning logo in school, having something like this would have been fantastic. Absolutely, and that was Robot Turtles. Now, finally, I have Flashpoint Fire Rescue. Now, I don't know if this has changed, but when I was a kid, a whole bunch of us wanted to be firemen. Like, we visited the fire station, and firemen came, and there was Sparky, the fire dog, and, like, like being a fireman just seemed like the coolest job ever. And Flashpoint lets kids do that. This game has the advantage of playing six players out of the box with an expansion that lets you add more. Now, the only concern I have with this game, because it's simple enough, there are family rules and complicated rules, so you can even have, like, the table of younger kids playing with one set of rules and the table with older kids diving all the way in. My only concern is the fact that you are dealing with a burning building, and yes, it's abstracted, like you're just pulling tokens out, but it is possible, that, you know, that grandma gets caught in the fire. So this could be traumatic, especially if you have a kid who's lived through a real fire. So this would be very dependent on knowing the kids you're playing with. And that was Flashpoint Fire Rescue. Now, other cooperative games that could be great for a one-hour grade school event include Outfoxed, Quirky Circuits, The Mind, Slide Quest, Talisman Legendary Tales, and Castle Panic. Mm -hmm. Next up, we have Dexterity Games. Anyone who has listened to this show for any amount of time knows the Bellhop's a big fan of Dexterity Games. The great thing about Dexterity Games is their accessibility. They don't require you to know anything about them before you play. Mm -hmm. Not having to know what trick-taking is, no reading required, and they are very easy to teach. They are also great for kids of all ages, and often, found, often it's found that for many of them, kids are better at them than the adults. Yes. So my first Dexterity Game recommendation is Go Cuckoo. I know we mentioned this game a lot, but it's really that good. This is a simple dexterity game that kids of all ages can play. I played this one with preschoolers. 
The only issue I see with this one is it is not a high player count game. So you're probably going to want multiple copies of this game or other games available besides just Go Cuckoo. But I also recommend just have this one available so that when kids are playing other games, if there's a kid that looks bored, they can just kind of go play with it. Like this is just a good one just to have an event like this to kind of fill the gaps between games. Or if you're playing a game of player elimination, it gives the kids that were eliminated something to play. This game is so simple. You can basically teach anyone to play it. Great components and kids are going to love building that giant nest. And when things fall and the sound, like that's one of the things I don't even know if we mentioned in our reviews, the sound of that egg falling into the tin is just such a great sound to hear. And that was Go Cuckoo. All right, next, pitch car. Imagine the look on a group of kids' eyes. We got the door closed, and they show up, and they open the door to the, the classroom. And here is a racetrack running all over the room. That's the kind of thing you can set up with pitch car. Potentially even having things like ramps going up onto desks and bridges across things and going up and around things. I am a huge fan of this flicking game that I find works great with all ages. Now, one tip, I don't remember who I first learned this from, but some podcasts I listened to suggested is with younger kids, they get two flicks for everyone else's one flick. That is until they get the hang of it, because I find flicking is a skill that you can learn at a pretty young age. Although if you're going to wrap a racetrack around a classroom, you might need a sponsorship from mm -hmm. the company in order to afford that much track. But that yeah, pitch car is not a cheap game, but if you are an educator, hopefully you have a budget for things like this. There you go. And that was pitch car. All right, let's reduce the price down to something I, I wouldn't say dirt cheap, but very reasonably priced, and that is Animal Upon Animal from Haba. There are a ton of different versions of this game out there, but they're all reasonably priced. And with a little rule tweaking, they're technically meant to be standalone, but you can combine them into one massive game. Though I think with kids, due to things falling down pretty regularly, you're actually better off just kind of having multiple sets out. And I can totally see this being a thing that would attract different groups of kids. Where you have, you know, the, 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 um, there's one with like unicorn version and then there's a race car version and there's an animal version and you can have them all out. And that way, if, you know, the little boy's into unicorns, he runs over there and the little girl wants to sack some race cars, she can go over there. And then the other one goes over and plays with the, the animals and you can just set all, all the different sets. The other thing that's great with this one too is getting into that imaginative play where, this is a game that's fun to play with, even if you're not playing the game. So it's a great one to have for especially like the grade one, grade twos, where they might just like put them in a corner with animal upon animal and let them do their own thing. And that was animal upon animal. Other games in this uh, genre include Riff Raff, Hamster Roll, the classic Jenga, which is often in a lot of classrooms already, and Rhino Hero. Now, while some kids like to work together, others thrive when there's competition. These are some great competitive games that we think a kid in grade school setting will enjoy. All right. First off is, hey, that's my fish. This is one of my kids' favorite games growing up that they still enjoy playing to this that day. My youngest actually got into this at a really young age and picked up all the rules very quickly. Sure, she didn't really get the take that aspects of the game and cutting people off, but she still loved the game and was able to play it. This is another one where I actually recommend you buy multiple sets and just make a huge iceberg with multiple players to play over or split into groups where you each have to have your own little section. 
Now, one thing I would personally do is this has been reprinted a number of times. And for some reason, I will never understand. Every time a new printing comes out, they change what the penguins are. One time there are meeples, another time there are standees, another time there are actually like full 3D plastic penguins. So if I was going to buy multiple copies, I'd actually try to get like one from each printing. So that way you can just throw in all different types of penguins. So you're the wood team and you're the plastic team and you're the standee team. I think this game could get fantastic. If you go online, you can find maps just for the other one, but like you can make a massive board and be able to play with a ton of people if you have the pieces to do so. And that was, hey, that's my fish. Now, Deanna suggested I put this next one on the list due to how often she's played it with our kids and how much they enjoyed it and how young they started, and that is Quirkle. Now, this is mostly a pattern matching game. And to be honest, what I would do when first introducing Quirkle to a group, especially one that's so much younger, is I would just leave it as a pattern matching game. I wouldn't teach them all the rules. I'd just be like, you have your tiles, you put them on the pattern following the rule that they have to match either the color or the shape, not both. And that you can't have the same things in the same row, right? That's it. Just a way to kind of play and then slowly add in scoring. Maybe you just get one point for every one you put in. And then start adding the limitations where you can only have one of each shape in a row. And then maybe add in the quirkle roll where you get 15 bonus points if you manage to get all the shapes or all the colors in a row. Now, this is another one where you could buy multiple sets and combine them. In this case, I would just recommend having more than one copy for more than one group to be able to play at once. Because by throwing in extra sets, you actually kind of throw off the balance of because there's a set number of each type in there. The other thing I would consider is Quirkle Cubes, because it's a little more forgiving. And kids love rolling dice. So it takes Quirkle and it gives you dice. And if you don't have a good move, you can always roll to see if you get a better pattern. Now, another bonus to this game that doesn't apply to many of the games we mentioned tonight is nice, solid, chunky wooden pieces. And if messy hands get involved in this game, it's easy to clean up. And that was Quirkle. Now, my final game I want to highlight for competitive games is Magic Labyrinth. Now, kids, I don't know, of all ages seem to be fascinated by magnets. I was fascinated by magnets. My youngest daughter loves magnets, is fascinated by magnets. I know I was. This is a game that has players moving through an invisible maze trying to collect magic ingredients. You basically draw a magic ingredient out of a bag and you put it on the board in a spot and the first person there claims it. Whoever claims, you know, I think it's three ingredients first wins. The whole thing that you don't see unless you set up the game, is there is a wooden maze on the other side, the bottom of the board, and you're actually using your piece as a magnet with a ball on the bottom of it, and you're actually moving it. So you have literal invisible walls you can feel yourself hitting, which is really neat. Note also these magnets are in large wooden ponds that are pretty much impossible to swallow. Now the big downfall of this game, though, is it only plays four players. But games are quick, so you could work, um, like, just play multiple games where different players take turns. Or, again, you could work in teams, though this one's a little hard one. Like, I think you're just going to argue, do we go this way or that? But with a team, maybe someone will be better at memorizing the maze than someone else. Like, oh, no, no, don't go that way. Remember, you hit a wall. So I could see it working with teams. This one, is just, it's the magnet aspect. It's the, the toyerificness of the game and the neatness of the first time you go to move a piece and hit a wall. This game just like, oh, that's so cool. Although I, every time I hear someone say it's almost impossible to swallow, I think that sounds like a challenge. <laughs> Don't say that to the kids. <laughs> and that was the Magic Labyrinth. Others on this uh, genre include Blockus, Monster Factory, Looney Quest, In Ingenious, King Me, and Catan Jr. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the issues you run into at a event, um, running an event, kids could have uh, for kids. You could have kids from early grades attending. That is those younger kids who may not be able to read. 
Due to this, when making this list, we pulled out the games that do require reading and put them in their own category. Now, these may work with younger kids with some help, or if paired up with a partner who can read. So if you're looking for a game that plays big groups and can get absolutely everyone laughing, take a look at Telestrations. Now, we mentioned this before. I think most people know the game, but it's a formalized version of the telephone game where players draw something based on a clue, then pass the drawing to the next player who then has to guess what it is. Then that gets passed to the next kid who draws what the last player guesses. Now, what I would do in a school version of this is I would make sure first off to pick up the party pack version because then you place 12 players or have multiple copies. And then I would make up my old clue list. I wouldn't use the cards that are in Telestration. I would, for one, make sure they're more kid friendly and don't include like movies the kids probably have never heard of. But then I would actually add in things that are based on the kids themselves and what they know, what they're into, possibly even tied into current lesson plans. If they're taking certain things in history or if it happens to be, you know, Black History Month, tying that in or even things like the school mascot or local sports teams. I would basically localize Telestration for, for my classroom. And that was Telestrations. Next, I have the Codenames series of games. Now, we've mentioned Codenames on the show many times, and I still say our personal preference is for Duet. I think playing with grade school kids, it's really going to matter which kids you're playing with, what your group's like, for which game works better. Basically, if your kids like being on teams and working together, you're going to look at Duet, but if you like, if they like the competitive, you got a bunch of competitive kids, and they're interested in doing whatever the old kids versus the young kids, or the teachers versus the kids, or something like that, you're going to look at Codenames. Now, what what I would do is make sure you match up the teams so that you have a good mix of people so that you don't have the young kids with the old kids because the old kids are just going to destroy someone playing code names. They just have a better, in general, have a better vocabulary. You want to mix everyone up, right? So you've got younger kids working with older kids for both giving the clues and stuff like that. You may also want to make it so that in, in the full code names, maybe the teacher is the one that gives the clues at first until they've learned the game. Now, if Codenames is a bit there on the advanced side, I don't know if I could properly teach a one-year-old how to play Codenames. There are other versions. There's Codename Pictures, which just uses pictures to point at. There is Codenames Disney and Codenames Marvel that you may want to look at. Now, personally, I thought Disney was a little too simplified. But again, if your group's like grade fours and under, you're probably great with Codenames Disney because it uses pictures. It doesn't use words. Now, Marvel could be fantastic. But if you've got a kid there who's never seen a Marvel movie or never read the comics, they're basically not going to be able to play. So I really think you're stuck in with the with the pitcher with pitchers duet and and basic code names in that case. Right. And that was the code name series of games. Finally, I have King of Tokyo. What kid does not love giant monsters, especially when one's like a giant penguin and another's a mecha cat and one's like a bunny controlling a mech suit? King of Tokyo is a King of the Hill themed dice game. Seems like it'd be great for all ages. And I almost always want to recommend this one. Kids are like, what are great kids games? And I totally forget that you get power points that you use to buy cards. And you definitely need to be able to read those to be able to play this game. So this one is recommended for older kids. Though again, you could pair up a non-reader with a reader to be able to play this game. What I do love about this game is its higher player count. Makes it great for big groups. Though the one thing to be aware of is there is player elimination. So this is where I recommend you have that copy of Go Cuckoo available so the eliminated players can go play that while the game finishes up. And that was King of Tokyo. Other great games that require the kids to read include Stuffed Fables, Forbidden Island, Woodlands, and Disney Villainous. 
Now, something you hope and others may not have considered that we think is a great option for a grade school gaming event is an RPG. Mm-hmm. A one-hour RPG session is probably the perfect length for most younger kids, and if it's a regular event, you have the option of running an ongoing campaign dealing with a new situation each week. This is also a great format to slowly introduce a more complicated RPG by adding in rules each week. So the first RPG I taught my kids is still my favorite for introducing kids to RPGs, and that is Mermaid Adventures. Not only does this have a super family-friendly theme with the whole undersea theme and various different types of mermaids and focus on things like the Mermaid Olympics and trying to find the Lost Pearl, it is Really dead simple system, just using white and black D6s for success failure. Collect white dice for the things you're good at. The GM gives you black dice for your complications. You roll some dice, they cancel each other out and see if you succeed. Really simple. The problem with Mermaid Adventures is finding a copy of the original printing. So Mermaid Adventures was originally released as a standalone RPG with this simple system. Sadly, Third Eye Games re-released it as a supplement for their PIP core system, which I honestly found wasn't very kid-friendly at all. Now, you could still use that, but you're going to need to pick up two books for one, and then you're going to have to simplify the rules. So if you can find it, find the original printing of Mermaid Adventures, which is a standalone game. And I do feel bad, because everything else on this list, I double-checked and made sure it was in print and available, but I can't help but recommend this game, because it works so great with my kids. And that was Mermaid Adventures, the original printing. Yes. Now, when you talk about role-playing, at least today in 2021, everyone knows about Dungeons & Dragons. It's pretty much ubiquitous now. It's almost at the point where you can walk into a toy store and buy action figures again. This game is arguably more popular than ever now, and there's a good chance some kids in your school, especially those showing up to a gaming event, are probably critters and into Critical Role or watch their favorite streamers play D&D as it is. Now, Adventure Begins is a great high improv way to get kids into some of the core concepts of Dungeons & Dragons, like rolling a d20 die to attack and hit points and showing off some of the unique creatures of the world, like beholders and dragons. This was a huge hit in my own household, as well as at my kids' grade school. So this is one that I have firsthand knowledge worked great in a one-hour after-school game setting. Only thing to watch for is production issues from Hasbro. And that was D&D Adventure Begins. Finally, I have Magical Kitty Save the Day, which I couldn't decide if I wanted to highlight this one or one of the other games that Sean's going to mention in a little bit, but I decided to settle on this because of the premise. What kid doesn't want to play a magical cat trying to solve their people's problems? Added to that, the system is quick, easy to learn, and play as a player. Like, it's honestly very similar to Mermaid Adventures, where you're grabbing a pool of dice based on what you can do. The difference is there's no opponent dice in this one. You're just trying to beat a difficulty number. The problem is with Magical Kitty Save the Day, which you can read about in my full review, is on the person running the game, the Game Master. Well, this is a great game to introduce kids to RPGs. It is not a great game for someone who has never run an RPG before to try to pick up and start running. Now, once you run the one-shot library adventure in the back of the book, which I will say is fantastic, you're basically on your own to keep the kids coming back after that. And their system for creating adventures requires a lot of prep work. Now, that said, if you are the type of person who has the time to do that work and maybe get some of the kids to help you out, I think you could keep kids interested in Magical Kitties for a long time. And that was Magical Kitties Save the Day. 
other, uh, sorry, we have Hero Kids, No Thank You Evil, Happy Birthday Robot, Little Wizards, and well, Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah, there's no reason you couldn't dive right in. So in my kids' grade school, the older kids actually just played full-on D&D because as a player, you don't need to know all the stuff. It's very easy for a DM to let you just tell them what you want to do and come up with a ruling for it and tell you what the what to roll this, roll that. Yes, you made it. D&D as a player can be that dead simple. Now that's it for our tips for running a grade school board game event and some game suggestions for running one. Remember, if you've got a game or game night question for us, head over to the website and click on Ask the Bellhop. Now let's head over to the lobby and see if they have anything to add. So I did see uh, a little bit of chatter happening here in the uh, thing. What do we got here? Uh, first one so I saw. So there, there is quite a yeah. bit, but it goes further up. So while you're going to look at that, so Math Guy Dave is in our chat room, but he did contact us ahead of time because he? he almost okay. forgot we were recording today. Dang, uh, four-day weekends. Through, through people, three-day weekends? I don't even know. How, this shows I work from home. I don't even know how many days a normal weekend is. It was a four-day weekend or a three-day weekend, I think. And it was four in the States and three here, depending on, on, on your holiday. Whatever. Got thrown off. Didn't realize we were recording tonight, but did join us. So games he suggested was Suspicion, Math Dice Jr., Telestrations, which we had, Dragonwood, which is one I've been curious about if I wanted to play, Labyrinth, which I assume is the Magic Labyrinth, the amazing Magic Labyrinth from Ravensburger, which I almost put on the list. Very solid game. Quirkle, which we had, Magic Labyrinth, which we had, and Werewolf. Werewolf, my personal bias, I don't know. Do we want to teach a bunch of kids to lie to each other? We don't, I'm not sure on that We one. don't like that game. So uh, we'll, we'll, I, I am not sure on we'll that let one. other people uh, make that decision. Uh, so Razul in the chat room said, co-op games are great as long as you can avoid the alpha gaming. And that is yes. definitely something. And, and one of the reasons why you, you can't just, you know, give these kids an, uh, a game and, and walk away over to another yeah. table. There does need to be some supervision to avoid things like that and to or to, you know, to, to help the kids who are getting you know run over if, if one kid is trending yes. in that direction. Yeah, the whole thing, like I talked about having the kids play in teams, you've got to make sure that it's a team. That, that you are letting the the youngest members, the quietest members, get their, their voice heard and making decisions so it's not just one member of that team that decides everything. Right. Um, what else have we got here? Uh, math Guy Dave, as a teacher, was laughing at your idea of an educator budget. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. uh, Tom, publishers are willing to work with schools. Yep. Many publishers. I don't know if the publishers who make Pitch Car are willing to work with schools, but actually they should. They make historical games that have teachers' editions. They they are the ones that do um um Freedom the Underground Railroad and that. They are the same comp company that publishes uh Pitch Car. So Eagle Griffin Games does have educational versions of games. So now more high school level, like these are these aren't the kind of games and topics you're gonna talk about. But they may be worth reaching out to for something like Pitch Car. Uh, Dimension could be good for this, which was, uh, which... Uh, that is one I've not tried. I've shared deals of it, but it does seem like it would be a good kids game. It's not one I have personally played. It has to do with stacking balls, trying to mat match patterns. It's a Cosmos game. Right. Uh, and, uh, and Math Guy Dave jumped in even before you did, talking about custom word lists for yes. illustrations. Uh, yeah. That's Absolutely. exactly where I would go right away. Uh, so um, Set is one that Courtney has mentioned. Set is a great game. I played that in high school, though the reason we played it in high school is we were taking a Turing programming course and someone was trying to program it in Turing and actually produced a very awesome version of Set that he was going to try to sell, but unfortunately ran into licensing issues. The Whoever owned Set was not willing to buy his software or let them use his name. So. Right. 
But that was really well done. And he mentioned the Pokemon trading card game. I personally would probably keep CCGs out. You don't want kids showing up for the first time playing those games and going home and begging their kids to buy booster packs. And most like that's a personal opinion. Most but schools have, have banned like any all of my kids' grade schools eventually at some point banned Pokemon uh, because yeah. of a lot. One of the big problems is uh, older kids taking advantage of younger kids and saying, hey, you want this pretty card for that one? And that yes. one is actually a valuable card or something. So, yes, definitely. Uh, digital gaming, uh, fair, but I don't want to talk about those tonight. <laughs> We're talking about in-person gaming for a change. We talked a lot about digital gaming. Uh, Razul mentions that the Marvel uh, versions of uh, uh, code names can be tough if you're not a huge Marvel yeah, fan. Yeah, exactly. That's that's why I didn't... I'm mentioning it as it exists. So if you happen to have a group of kids that are all talking MCU all the time, it might be the perfect game for them. So Razul mentions Munchkin, but then Dave, our teacher, steps yeah. in and says, might not be great in a classroom. Yeah, I, I personally would be avoiding take that games. Anything where you're where you're 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 stabbing another player in the back could easily lead to hard feelings. Right. Hurt feelings, not hard feelings. Well, possibly hard feelings too. And for a middle school, a little older than we're talking here, but Math Guy Dave has run DCC Funnel. Oh, there you go. But same thing, like almost, to be honest, almost every role-playing game is a player. Like I'm not trying to downgrade players. And yes, there is such a thing as player skill and system mastery and being good at a role-playing game. But pretty much every role-playing game is you, the DM presenting a situation, you going, this is how I react to it, and the DM telling you what to do. So like almost all of them are perfect for kids in a way, because I just tell you what you need to roll stuff. Take the gold sounds like a good one, which has corgis and kitties on it. It's not one I know myself, but that sounds like it could be good. That comes from tech. Um, King of Tokyo is kind of the same way. See, King of Tokyo, uh, you know, it has some take that, but it's more, it's you hit everyone. It's one of the things I like about King of Tokyo is every fist you roll while you're in Tokyo hits everyone. So you're not really centering anyone out. And yes, you attack the person in Tokyo, but it's King of the Hill. Like, I, I, I it's very hard for favoritism. To play a role in King of Tokyo, where in Munchkin, it can. If there's the kid that they pick on in the schoolyard, they can now pick on them in a game atmosphere. And you don't want that. You want to avoid that at all costs. That's where I think King of Tokyo beats out games like Munchkin. Splendor could be good. I, I agree. Any of those like simple engine builders. Again, you're working on low player counts. That's my only disadvantage I can really see with Splendor. Mm. Yeah, DCC works great for huge groups. Yep. That's totally fair. All right. I think we're good. Yeah, I think we're... Uh... Thank you, everyone in the chat, as always, for tossing out those awesome ideas. I always love it when they're, like, one step ahead or behind us. Like, one of the two. Yep. Either I say something and I see someone put it in the chat, or I see them put it in the chat and I'm about to say it. That always makes me feel good. I love seeing that. We doing this? Yeah? All right. Remember, if you got a game or game night question for us, head over to the website, click on Ask the Bellhop. Welcome to a look at Hidden Games Crime Scene, case number one. The Maple Brook case. Thanks to Hidden Industries for sending us a copy of this murder mystery game to check out. Hidden Games Crime Scene Case 1 was published and designed by Hidden Industries, a company out of Germany. They first launched a series of games in Germany in 2019 and have been expanding out to other countries, finally hitting North America this year. Now, there are actually a total of 10 different versions of of this first case, each of which has been localized to a different country and actually is changed and different in each case. Now, the copy I have is the Canadian version, which is called the Maplebrook case, but everyone actually has a unique name. 
Note, this game is country specific, so you need the version for your country to fully enjoy the game for reasons we're going to delve into as we go along. Now, when playing case one of Hidden Games Crime Scene, players work together to answer four questions. How did the suspect die? Who sent you the envelope? Who sent you the torn letter? And who committed the crime? Now, to solve this case and get these answers, the players are presented with a plethora of information, both in the form of physical clues in different formats and digital breadcrumbs leading you online into your phones. Now, in particular, the Maplebrook case has you solving the murder of Max Glover, who died at the county fair in Maplebrook, B.C. Since this is a mystery game and we don't want to spoil anything, we didn't record an unboxing mm -hmm. video for this one. Now, what I will say here is the variety and quality of the evidence, including this game, is very impressive. Of all the murder mystery games I've played so far, this one has the best components with the biggest variety. It doesn't feel like someone just spent 10 minutes at their laser printer and then just stuffed everything in an envelope and sent it to us. Inside the case file envelope, which is a, like a big manila-sized envelope made out of cardboard, you're going to find things printed on various types of paper. You've got newsprint, letterhead, there's a business card, there's a flyer, there's some lined paper that's been written on and more. You also get a poster corkboard for taking notes on and a calendar for tracking dates. Now, are there yarn and pins? You can do the whole... You could, technically, but it's actually already there on the corkboard. Now, one minor annoyance we did have is the fact the calendar and corkboard are on that, that they're, were the last thing in the envelope. So what we did, there, like I said, there's a ton of stuff in here. Like, it's like you're pulling out sheet after sheet after sheet. And what we did was, like, pulled out a sheet, kind of looked at it for clues, and then passed it to someone else, and pulled out another one, and then passed it around, then pulled out another one. Don't do that. Don't don't take things out one at a time and scour them for clues before moving on to the next. Instead, like, dump the whole thing and go through it quickly before you start taking notes, because you'll eventually realize, oh, this is here for us to use to take notes and keep things organized. As for physical components... I, I hated the stuff that the poster was printed on. It's poster paper. And if you ever tried to use a ballpen pen on a poster paper, you understand exactly what I'm complaining about here. I want something that's easy to write on to put my notes on. So we had to go find a Sharpie to keep keep playing. But we ruined, I think, two pens just trying to get this through because that poster coding doesn't work so great with writing on. So what exactly are you doing with all of this evidence? All right. So one of the first things you're going to find is... In, in this is a sheet telling you what to look at, what look for. Now, honestly, it's actually the same thing that's on the back of the envelope that has the same instructions in case you actually miss it because you do dump everything on the table or if you just get distracted looking at stuff. So the point of the game, the goal of the game is to answer four questions. Now, in Maplebrook specifically, it's how did Max Glover die? Who sent you the envelope, the big envelope? Who sent the torn letter, which is something you'll discover inside it? And who committed the crime? Now, you're going to use the evidence to answer these questions. Now, in addition to the physical elements provided, a number of the clues are going to lead you to look online, where you'll need to do things like call a voicemail inbox, look up someone on Facebook, hack into a police database, and more. Now, again, to help you organize things, you get pages from a date book, which you can use to track who was where when, and when key things happen, perfect for finding alibis. And then there's the poster-sized picture of the corkboard with images of all the parties, and it's got every person who's mentioned in any of the evidence with a picture of them and notes. And one of the things we totally missed the first time through is some of that's pre-filled out and is required to solve some of the issues in the case. 
So you're not just cutting up paper strips and playing with a few doodads in the box. Mm. Unlike some of the uh, the more minor escape room type games, for instance, this takes some actual research. Though yeah. I'm certainly hoping that unlike checking Facebook, you're not actually hacking a police database. No, you go to a specific website and it requires a password and there's stuff in the thing to help you figure out that password, which leads you to a bunch of files. And some of the files are encrypted and there's stuff. it's not real. But it does give you that feel. That you're doing that. Like you are going to a website and it looks like an official Maplebrook police record. Now, once you've figured out your answers to the four questions, you go online to a specific website and check to see if you're correct. Now, in addition to having the proper answers and how you should have reached what you what you came to and, and what the proper answer is, but like, they actually walk through it. Like, because of this, 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 and this, you should have figured this out. This is also where you'd go if you need hints. And what it does is it gives you a huge selection of all the stuff that's in there. And you can click on it. And the very basic clues are very basic. Like, don't feel at all guilty for clicking on the first clue that just basically says that read this part of the page and basically gives you an ind indication that, oh, you should be looking at this if you weren't yet. Now, what this also does, which I like, is it gives you access to some of the technology required to play the game if you didn't have it. So if you don't have a Facebook account, you can actually go through and click on the part that says Facebook, and you're going to have to go through about three hints before it'll actually show it to you, but they will give you the Facebook page eventually. So while reliance on technology is one aspect that could be a negative, the fact that yeah. you can't accidentally see the answers by looking at that one wrong sheet of paper that comes with mm -hmm. the game is a nice benefit. Agreed. Now, unlike the various exit games and other murder mystery games we played, there's no timer here. There's no score either. There's no no, no real goal. Uh, basically, the evidence lists the game, as, sorry, the envelope lists the game taking an hour to an hour and a half. Um, or sorry, an hour and a half to two and a half hours. 1.5 to 2.5 hours. Uh, it took us about an hour and 45 minutes. To before we were confident looking up our answers. We probably could have looked them up earlier, but we were double-checking things and making sure. I did find it weird not to get some kind of score. Like, it just, that that part of the game felt missing. Or a timer, like, just a rank. You did great, you did bad, you did this. It just felt a little strange. All right, well, now that we've got a good idea of how you solve this mystery, how about you share some thoughts on how it played? So the biggest thing that really impressed me right from tearing the envelope the first time is the quality of the components and the amount. They really stuffed this envelope full. This is a step above every other murder mystery game I played, both in regards to the quality of the evidence and the level of detail and the variety. So it's great to see that people aren't doing the bare minimum here. It's so easy to just... We're going to the clues, print them out in bulk at your local FedEx store, stuff them in envelopes, and you're done. No, this was extremely well produced. Uh, the other thing that I really liked, and I kind of alluded to this earlier in the Maplebrook case, is it did a great job of immersing you into the game. The entire point of it is someone sent you this envelope. And yes, it looks like an envelope. No, it doesn't fold open right. Like they, If they had realized how they were going to pack it, they probably could have made it look even more official, but it's really good. And then the spot where it should have returned to sender, it says stamped on it something. I forget exactly what it says, but it's something like sender unknown, right? Like they did a really good job of like, making an AR aspect of this, right? An, an augmented reality. This could be a real thing. You get things like maps and, and, and there's a Google map showing multiple routes to places. You get business cards, flyers. You even get a, a small town newspaper that makes Maplebrook, BC feel real. Like a real place with a real murder. 
And then there's the online touches. Like the designers of this game went and took the time to create a fake business websites and they made Facebook pages for people that are in this so they look like real people. While this is great for immersion, it did lead to uh, what I would say is probably the biggest problem with this game is that it needs more than what's in the box. And it requires things that not every gamer may have. Now, I guess say cell phones are pretty ubiquitous, but not everyone has one. And not everyone who has a cell phone has a Facebook account, for example. Now, the company does provide their website, which you don't, if, if you don't have access to everything, like if you, you can't call the 1-800, or sorry, call the phone number to get the, the voicemail, or if you can't get online, you can go to this webpage and get the hint. The problem is you got to click through all the clues first to see what you need to see. Though I have to admit, by the time like you get to that Facebook page, you should have already solved the other stuff. But you could just be like going on Facebook searching Maple Brook case or something instead of the specific person you're looking for. So it's just it's not optimal. And then, well, you still need Internet. You need to have the Internet to view this page at all, to see the hints and to see if you won. There is nothing in the box that tells you the answers. Well, I think we are reaching a point for better or worse, where we can assume that everyone who is in a position to buy a game like this has Internet and likely a phone it does still make me wonder, running a website costs money. Not a lot to be sure, but it is not free and it's an ongoing cost. How long is the company willing to maintain the cost? Because the game is dead once that website is gone, no matter how many copies are left on the shelves. Well, again, everything's still on their webpage. So if Facebook shut down the account and the fake hack into the cop's thing they lose the licensing for that and the the other places you go online sort of trying not to spoil anything if they lost access to all that you could still get to all of it on their clue page and well that'd mean the game would have to like the company would have to go to business it's the company's web page where you'd go to buy a copy of the game so in a way that's fair but it's definitely a valid concern that five years from now if i happen to have a copy of this around i never cracked open you may not be able to play it if that website's gone now, another thing that annoyed me a lot, and maybe it shouldn't bug me that much, but it bugged me a lot personally, is there is a voicemail number to call, and it's not a 1-800 number. Now, it is a Canadian number. It's actually a BC number with a BC area code. It is a long-distance call from here in Windsor. Now, thankfully, one member of our family has free unlimited calling for Canada, and yes, that is pretty much common with most cell phone plans, but it's not something everyone has. And to be honest, when we locked down, when, when COVID hit, we stripped that out of our phones because we're not planning on going anywhere. We removed roaming and, and, and all Canada-wide calling because I wasn't expecting to drive up to Toronto or anything anytime soon and to need it. So, yes, you can get around this by clicking through the clues on the webpage and listening to the voicemail there. I was just put off by having to call and pay to call someone. Yeah, well, I mean, at least they do have options not to spend. The website, while perhaps frustrating, is better than getting hit with an unexpected phone bill for a game you already bought. Yeah, I just, like I said, it just seems strange. Though I'm sure that's part of the localize. At least they didn't want me to call Germany. <laughs> so that was slightly better. So I guess the localization helped. Now, as for actually sitting down and playing this game is a lot of fun. Um, the sheer amount of information you are provided with is impressive and overwhelming, but in a good way. It was just like... I, I, it felt like a clown card, the amount of stuff I just kept falling out of this. And inside this envelope was another envelope that had stuff inside that envelope. And I love the variety of clue types, like, like all kinds of things that were well done and made you feel clever. And honestly, that's what should be in every escape room puzzle murder mystery game is I want to feel clever. That's the point of these games. I want to feel good about my mental prowess being able to solve things. Many of the clues required deductive reasoning. 
There was an awful lot of process, process of elimination, and there was even a math puzzle as part of the game. What I appreciate most, though, for almost every answer, there were multiple clues leading to that answer, giving the same answer. And this was awesome for two reasons. The first being you could miss something and still solve the case. So you didn't have to discover every single clue in the end, every single clue, and how they connect. That wasn't necessary to, to, to win the game. The second thing is that when you had a theory, finding multiple sources for a suspected answer was awesome to go, yeah, we got that right. So not only do we know the license plate, we also know the pizza. And you put those together. So therefore, note I'm making these up. These may, may or may not have anything to do with the case. By the time we decided to enter our answers online, we were confident. We were like, no, oh, no, we got this. We got this. It's definitely this. It's definitely this. Oh, but what about this? Yeah, I guess there's a small chance, but we're pretty. And, like, and it felt really good that we literally had everything right. Like when it went through the first, you should realize that blah, blah, blah. And this happened here. And then because of that, this and this person's connected to this. And this is this. You should get to this result. Like we we're like, yep, 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 exactly. And it felt so good. Now, when you start talking about puzzles, you talked about the immersion of all the different pieces, but it, did it at any time feel too much like playing a game and not enough like trying to actually, you know, be detective solving a crime? Did any of the puzzles pull you out of that immersion? No, the only puzzle was to figure out someone's password. And it fit because it was someone left an obscure thing to help remind them of their password that not everyone's going to get right away. Most of it was, like I said, like, deduction and... and 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 cor cor collaboration corroborating is that the word i get corroborating evidence i think corroborating you find yeah. corroborating that's the word i was looking for sorry my fail at english there corroborating evidence listening to interviews catching the right piece of information like little things would get slipped out because there, there were interviews you listened to with actual people talking and it was extremely well done and like i said puzzle wise there was one puzzle that i admit we tried about four times because it was a wrong password like all right what are we doing wrong and it was a word-based math puzzle that was definitely difficult enough it stumped us for a little while now another aspect i appreciate about this particular murder mystery experience is it wasn't adult like yes there was a murder but there was no gore there were no pictures of the crime scene there were no dead bodies to look at there were no implements to see there was literally zero horror or shock value in this game which would make this a relatively family-friendly experience. So at the time, we like if I had known better, I would have invited our older oldest daughter to play with us. But we didn't know sitting down to play because it's highly likely it's like here's the crime scene with dead body. She wouldn't have liked that. Yeah, it's always a good thing. There's nothing wrong with letting your kids know murder is a thing. It's yeah. explaining the blood splatters that you might want to avoid. Yeah, there was none of that in this whatsoever. So overall, we had a great time playing through Hidden Games Crime Scene, the Maple Brook case. Um, we played three players, myself, my wife, and my mother-in-law. Uh, we felt it was like perfect difficulty level in length. It, it didn't overstay its welcome. We never ended up overly frustrated. The clues were just difficult enough to make you feel smart when you figured them out. And, and especially we love the, the corroborating evidence. See, if I'd scroll down, I used that word later and I spelled it so I could say it, <laughs> to help confirm our theories. I, I actually really appreciate that. A lot, any other or even the escape games that I played, there was always just the one solution, the one way to go. And if you missed any part of that, you were lost. Whereas this, like, oh, I found it here and then this and the two together. Yes, we got it. I love the feeling that that gave. And, and I felt good with how we did at the end. And that's really what matters, that you enjoyed taking part in this experience. So 
the game is a cardstock version of a manila envelope, right? It's stuffed full of evidence of various types. And it that combined with the modern technology use really makes you feel like feel like this is a real case. Like like someone sent you an envelope and is help, looking for your help to try to solve it, right? It sends players out into the web looking for additional clues while other players are sifting through everything. If you're a fan of murder mystery games, I strongly recommend picking up Hidden Games Crime Scene Case Number One, whatever localized version they sell in your region, which you'll have to determine for yourself. Now, if you've never tried one of these games before, if you've never done the murder mystery thing before, or even, you know, an evening of murder, any of those, I think this would be a great starting point to see if you enjoy murder mystery games. You may or may not. This would be a good way to find out. I think the quality of this product, plus the way it keeps things zoomed out, right? No gore, no no, no looking at police pictures and, and, and uh, morgue reports, right? I think this would be a great first mystery game for someone. Now, for someone who's had some not-so-great experiences with these types of games, but are willing to give them another shot, I also recommend checking this out. So far, this is the tightest, most well-done murder mystery game we've played. If you don't dig trying to solve murders, looking through piles of evidence, and trying to make connections and check alibis, this isn't going to be for you. Now, I do have one other thing I want to mention on replayability. The hidden games, crime scene games, are meant to be one-and-done games. And the company will probably hate the fact I'm mentioning this, but that doesn't have to be the case. At least with this first case. There is nothing here that you need to destroy. There's nothing you need to fold, cut, or write on. Yes, it gives you a date book and a calendar to keep notes on, but there's no reason you have to use those. You could do it on a scrap piece of paper, which I wish we had done, because then I could pass my copy of my game onto someone else and they could experience it. So unlike many of the exit games, nothing destroyed, totally replayable, as long as you don't write on the stuff that comes in the game. Well, that's it for our look at Hidden Games Crime Scene Case Number 1. When you've got time, be sure to check out the review section of the blog over at TabletopBellhop.com for a more detailed look at this murder mystery game. Welcome to a preview of The Red Bernouse, Algeria, 1857, a historical, educational deck-building game. Thank you, Hit'em With A Shoe Games, for sending us a prototype copy of this game to check out. No other compensation was provided. So The Red Bernouse, Algeria, 1857, was designed by Roberta Taylor and Matt Schumacher. It features very striking artwork from Essene Beblik and graphic design by Helen Schumacher. Kareem Usaris provided cultural consulting, and editing was done by Nicole Amato. And I do apologize if I have any of those pronunciations wrong, which I probably do. Now, a crowdfunding campaign for the Red Bernouse will be launching on Kickstarter on September 14th, with plans to have the game published in 2022. Now, this historic game can be played with one to four players, with games taking between an hour and a half to an hour, give or take. Please note that this review is based off a prototype copy of the Red Bernus. The rules and production quality are subject to change. That said, at this point, the rules, board design, and card effects are complete and may only be upgraded in regards to clarity and usability. Now, in the Red Bernus, Algeria 1857, you take on the role of a Kabyle leader in control of two to four villages and work with the other leaders to defend those villages from the invading French armies. This is a deck-building game with you start with a set deck containing villagers, things like man, woman, child, and artisan, 
which you will use to play into your villages or use to purchase new carts like fig orchards, weapons, and Mohajadeen defenders. This is combined with cubes on a map style war game where you'll be placing and moving cubes representing your defenders on the board to stop the French advance, which is controlled by an automata deck. Now, combat is D6 based using a traditional war game combat results table. Now, due to this being a prototype, we don't have an unboxing video to share with you today, as we expect the production copy to differ, uh, be different from this prototype in some ways. Now, in the box for what I did get, I had five different types of card decks, including four identical starter decks, the, your typical deck building deck, eight leader cards, eight different types of recruitable cards, your market, nine village cards, and the French automata deck. Now, there are also four really useful reference cards with the turn sequence listed on one side and the combat results table, which I may start saying CRT instead of combat results table. So if you hear me say CRT, I mean combat results table on the other side. Other components include D6 dice and cubes for each army type, meeples to represent specific heroes, three pawns to represent the French armies moving around the board, wooden cylinders to represent defenses, and a small selection of tokens, including a retreat token, four submitted tokens, a number of reroll tokens, and three army start location tokens. Well, that is quite a bit of stuff in there. So I guess the next question I have from this is, do they make good use of all those components, or is this going to be really crowded on the table? No, I find it worked out really well. Uh, it, it's just what you need. There, There isn't anything extra and there's a little, anything a little too little. Though I will admit now uh, the game came with everything in one big baggie. I Now that I have things separated into smaller baggies, it is much quicker to set up than the first couple times I played. Now what I will say, again, prototype, right? What I have as a prototype, I am certain this is going to be a very visually striking game. The artwork here is excellent, and I appreciate the fact they actually went with an an Algerian artist for all of the artwork in the game. The board looks good. Uh, it's very effective during play. Like, plenty of room. The army spots to put the French armies are very clear. Where the villages are clear, there's no confusion over what routes things can take. None of the, the pitfalls I've seen with some other war games. My only complaint in regards to this so far is the card design. Specifically, the iconography. Uh, the iconography is very tiny and in black and white. And all they did is they put it black on white for resources you generate, black on red for resources you spend. And there are five different resources in the game and they really could have used to be color coded. Like food is green and Mohajadeen are white or something. Just some way to, because so, as it stands, you honestly can't see the cost from across the table. Though I will admit that after our third game or so, we had pretty much memorized all the costs because it is a static marking. Well, now that we have some idea of what you'll be getting with this cooperative historic deck building game, how about you give us an overview of how the game is played? All right, so you start off a game of the Red Bernouse, Algeria 1857, by determining which players will control which villages on the map. Now, this is based on player count, so depending on how many people you're playing with, you're each going to either own two to four villages. Now, players are going to take village cards for those villages, along with one of the starter decks. The hero deck shuffled, and you're going to get dealt two heroes and pick one to add to your deck. The other gets removed from the game. So that does add some replayability. Players will then collect any additional starting cards. Now, this is based on the villages you got. 
and the heroes. They may say, you start with this, you start with that, you have a, a fig orchard, you have a mohajadate already. So you start with those. And you're going to also place cubes for any units you collect into the villages. So whenever you collect one of the, the cards that represent a unit, you also put a cube out on the board to show where that unit is. Now, the village cards are placed in front of the players. The rest of your cards you shuffle and become your deck for this deck builder. So is there any asymmetry here, or are all the villages similar? So each village does have its own unique ability on it, or unique thing it does. Some give you starting things, like one will start with, say, like a fig orchard. One will start with a market. The other thing is many of them affect when the French attack. So there are at least two villages that I know of that are high in the hills and hard to reach, so the French can't attack with cavalry. There are others that are well defended, so that uh, artillery work works on them, uh, and so on. So each of the different villages does have an ability, though I did notice there was some overlap. Like there were two villages that help against artillery, and there are two that help against cavalry so there is some asymmetry with which villages you have now the three army start indicators so all these are as arrows are placed down because there are three french armies invading and what this does is that you don't know which army is going to come in on the board where and they are coming in through algeria's mountainous region so they are coming in through one of the three mountain passes you don't know which army is going to come in where which is actually really well done now initial units are added to these armies you're going to draw one card per player off the french deck now, the French units come in four types. There's artillery, cavalry, carabinier, sappers are your four types. Artillery technically don't get placed this way. They come up during French cards later that'll have you add artillery partway through the game. Now, each of these unit types is represented by a different colored cube and a D6 die in that color. Now, after placing units from this card, you're going to draw card draw. The army spots on the board have a what's called deploy value. If you get enough cubes on there, they deploy and go out in the map. It is possible at the start of the game, the first army might deploy. Where it deploys is that army start indicator that was randomized earlier. Now, note at this point, all the rest of the text on the French cards are ignored. All you're looking at is units. So it's just kind of like a setup at the beginning of the game. Now, the rest of the cards in the game form a static market of eight different cards. I'm not going to get into the detail of exactly what each of those are, but each has a cost at the bottom of the card, card text telling you what it does, and some cards also generate resources. Now, I did mention there are five resources in this game. There is food, influence, military power, tools, and weapons. So five resources for a deck builder is quite a bit, yes. considering most generally stick with two. <laughs> yeah, usually you have purchase power and attack power, if yeah. that. Some even less. Yeah, this is definitely a different type of deck building game. So when you actually start playing, now that everything's set up, you determine start player. I don't remember if there was a silly rule for it. My bad. Uh, you're going to take three actions and then get to buy up to two cards. Now, after a set number of players acts, based on the player count, the French will act. For four players, it's after every two players. So two players go the French, go two players, go the French player. If you're playing any other player count, this is after everyone. So if you're playing three players, all three players go, then the, the French. If you're playing two players, both players go, then the French. Now the game ends in a French victory when either two players are eliminated due to losing a village or when one player has been forced to retreat and one player is eliminated. The players win if the Algerians can survive until the French deck runs out. Note, historically, this does not mean the Algerians win. It just means you lasted through this assault because, unfortunately, in real history, the French do end up conquering this entire territory. Sorry, pacifying this entire territory. Sadly, however, attrition has often been one of the only options available to those being invaded. So the actions you can take on your turn include play a card. 
use the ability on the card. These are, if you play Dominion or other deck builders, this is your action abilities, right? These include things like being able to move your defenders around on the map, drawing additional cards, ambushing the French armies, and more. A card used this way cannot be used for purchasing later in the turn. Next is Reserve. This is the most important part of this game, in my opinion. Either place a card from your hand into one of your villages, again, you have two to four of them, or take all the cards in one village back to your hand. This is the most unique mechanic in this deck building game and really sets it apart from every other deck builder I've ever played. This gives you a ton of control over your deck in your hand. In addition to this, many of the starter cards have abilities that go off when you place them into a village. These abilities include drawing more cards, earning reroll tokens, moving cards between your villages, and more. The final action option, which you can do these in any order and multiple times if you wish, is Mobilize. This lets you move your units, note not your heroes, from one village you control to another village you control. It's interesting to use the board as a card management solution, and I certainly can't think of uh, anything I've run across that does anything similar. Um, and on top of that, it, it feels like it's connected to the game. Like it, yeah. it feels like it makes sense. It's not just a cool mechanism that, that someone decided yes. to add in. I totally agree. So one thing, just to make it clear, in case you're not picturing this right, you don't actually play your cards onto the board villages. You have cards to represent the villages. So you're placing your cards on top of your village cards because what would clutter the board otherwise. But the effect is you are putting things right. into play. Now, after completing up to three actions, you then use your remaining cards to recruit new cards. Now, each card can provide up to three different resources, and you add them all together. So you take all the cards that are left in your hand and add up all those resources. You can then use those to buy two cards from the static market. Now, what's interesting here is the distribution of resources in the cards and what you need to buy each of them. Again, I'm not going to describe every card. It'd take way too long, but seven of the eight cards require influence. All of the units that you put on the board require food. Weapons are particularly hard to buy at the beginning of the game because they require tools, and your starter deck only has one artificer that has tools. So you can kind of see how the villagers need to band together and work together to even start making a defense. So rather than the all-too-common throw down all your cards, sum up your resources, draw, spend, spend or attack, and you're done, the actions are separate from that purchasing yes. phase. Yeah, completely separate phase of the game. Now, two of the recruitable cards represent units. These are the Mohajadeen and the Sharpshooters. When you get one of these cards, you're going to place a cube on the map to represent that unit. Then the card goes into your deck. Now, when these cards come up in your deck, they generate resources, but they can also be discarded with weapons to ambush the French. And I specifically call this out because this is something you are going to want to do as often as you can. In an ambush, you select any number of units to participate from one single village and a French army to attack. You have to have a clear path to this army that doesn't pass through any other villages. You then roll a die for each of your units taking part in the ambush and check the CRT to see if you generate hits. Rerolls can be spent, one token per die, and for each hit, you get to remove a French unit of your choice. The French then counterattack, but because this is a guerrilla ambush, they only attack with a number of units equal to half the size of the force you ambushed with, or the number of French units, whichever is lower. Again, hits are calculated based on the CRT. Reroll tokens can be used here as well, so you can reroll the opponent's dice as well. Now, units are lost based on the order showed on the CRT, so the French take casualties, or you take casualties in a set order. Finally, once both sides have taken casualties, you see if the French army has been reduced below its retreat limit, and if it has, it goes back down to the bottom of the board, possibly to redeploy later in the game. 
If there are any units in the reinforcement area at this time, they're added to the army, which I need to mention because we'll get to reinforcements later. Those reinforcements could cause that French army to redeploy immediately. So this is quite the war game and certainly yeah. more of one than I expected when I heard Deck Builder uh, mm -hmm. with quite a tactical component uh, to yes. this game. Yeah, this is definitely a war game mashed with a deck building game. It may not have hexes and counters, but there is a lot of war game roots here. Now, again, I mentioned once a set number of players take their actions, the French go. So the way the French go is you flip the top card of the automata deck and the units indicated on the card are added to the lowest undeployed French army. And if all the armies are deployed, it gets put into the reinforcements. So those are those ones that would back up the army if they retreat. The deploy number in each army is now checked, the undeployed one, to see if you now beat it. So if there's enough cubes there to meet or beat that number, that army will deploy. The same way I mentioned earlier, you're going to flip over the thing and see which army they come in. And note, you don't put the cubes all on the map. That would be a mess. Instead, they just give you a pawn. And the pawn represents the army where the cubes are all at the bottom. Next, any text on the French card is followed. Again, I'm not going to get to all the details, but it can do things like add cannons to the French armies that are already deployed, cause players to discard cards. Uh, the French were famous for burning down the orchards and destroying markets and more. Then all the French armies move. This follows a pretty simple set of, I know people like to call it AI rules, I don't know, whatever. They, they follow a set of guidelines. In general, the French always move towards the closest unconquered village. If there are ever two equidistant villages, there's symbols on the map, and the army will move towards the symbol that matches what's showing on the phrase up card. Pretty simple. So while it's called automata, it's really not, as it doesn't actually have any processes, except you're no. flipping the top card of a shuffled deck. Yeah, that's correct. And I actually, I, I have suggested to the the designer to remove the whole automata, because to me that makes it sound like a robot and something foreign. Just call it the French. It's French armies that are acting. And it, to me, dehumanizes the French, where in a game with this that's so poignant, I think just calling it the French all the way through would actually have more of an impact. Now, if the French reach a village, the first thing they'll have to deal with is any defenses built. Now, these this defenses is one of the recruitable cards, and they're represented on the board with purple cylinders. This, again, may change. Now, first, sappers cancel out defenses. So French sappers cancel out defenses one-to-one, -one, removing both from the map. If any defenses remain, the French lose one unit per defense that's still left and have to stop just outside the village. Now, they will move in to attack next turn, unless more defenses can be built. Then they have to go through this again. Now, if the French aren't stopped by defenses, a battle happens. Now, all combats resolve by rolling a d6 and referencing the combat results table. Now, unlike ambushes, though, there's a very distinct order to the combat with casualties having to be resolved in a certain order, unlike getting to pick who you killed when you're ambushing. So first, French cannons fire. Then the Algerian troops attack back. Then the French counterattack. After casualties are taken from all those steps, you see if the French army retreats, as described earlier. Then the Algerian player, if they haven't been wiped out, has the option to retreat. The thing is, based on historical facts here, the Algerians can only retreat once during the entire game. So if someone else has already retreated, you have to fight to the finish. Also, in a really brilliant, in my opinion, thematic uh, tie-in here, Algerian troops will not retreat from a village that contains any child or youth cards in it. The first and only time a player chooses to retreat, you're going to put a token on that village to show that you've retreated. You're going to discard any cards located in the village you retreated from and then move any retreating units to another one of your villages. Give a colonist an inch and they'll take a mile. Now, if a player ever loses a battle, because what happens if no one retreats, you just keep fighting until one side's wiped out. If you lose one battle, 
just one battle, you're removed from the game. All of your Mohajadeen units join the French army that conquered them, and a submitted token is placed on each of your villages. From then on, you're out of the game. Note, if either two players are eliminated, or a player is eliminated after the recruit token is already in play, the players just lose. Game continues until either the French deck is emptied, or the players lose. It's not hard to find the depressing realism in this game, but it's an important topic that is all too often looked at from the other side of history. Mm -hmm. And now that we have a rough idea of how to play, how about you share some of your thoughts on the Red Burnings? What did you think of this war game deck builder mashup? So I love discovering a game that's doing something new and different, and that's what we have here with the Red Burnings. Here we have a game that takes static market deck building, where you're not changing up. It's always the same cards for sale every round, and combines it with traditional war game elements, while also making it a cooperative game. You don't get a lot of cooperative war games out there, and you're playing the indigenous people resisting the colonists instead of the colonizers, and I love everything about that. Yeah, there is a lot going on here. Now, the theme in the Red Burnus really stands out. So included with my prototype was a historical reference that I assume will be included with the full game that describes the various French incursions into Algeria, which started in the 1830s. It details the valiant efforts of the Algerians in holding back the French conquerors and particularly the role of Lala Fatmet and Sumer, one of the leaders of the Algerian resistance movement and one of the most well-known Algerian heroes who is also female, which is notable. And this is the sort of history that sadly is not being taught in our schools. And I have to say, the first time I played this game and I picked up my starter deck and I looked at it, it just kind of hit home. Your starter deck in this game is a deck building game. Everyone starts the same thing, has two men, two women, two young men, two young women, a youth, a child, an old man, and an artisan. Those are your cards. This is your starting army in this game. These are your forces. Meanwhile, before the game begins, you can already see the French army building up with its carabinier, cavalry, and artillery. The reality of colonization. These fathers' forces weren't bothering with fair battles. They were here for the easy win. And even that weird rule that once you lose one fight, you're eliminated from the game is actually based on historic fact. The way your troops join the French is based on historic fact. The Algerians used what was called the SAF system, S-A-F-F, of alliances between the, the Caballet tribes. The French took advantage of this due to the fact that if one SAF was defeated, every tribe in that SAF was also forced to surrender immediately. Added to that, the people in that tribe then had to follow the French and turn their rifles on the remaining independent tribes. And the game represents this with that player elimination rule where if you just lose one battle, sorry, you're now on the French side. And unfortunately, you don't really run out of the utter evil that has been done by colonizing peoples when you sit down and look for it. I also found that placing your cards individuals into villages feels very thematic, right? Like you end up filling your villages with men, women, and children in order to bolster your forces. You store food in a village you hope the French won't conquer so you can bring it out when you need it. And then there's, of course, that thematic rule that you can't retreat if your village has youth or children in it. All really well tied in. And this... Ability to place cards on your table, out of your deck, and into a village is the most unique, interesting part of this deck building. The mechanics, looking at not the thematic side, but the mechanical side of the Red Burnus. We very quickly learned just how powerful that reserve action can be. 
It lets you do things like place weapons in a village so that you can take them out when you need them later. It lets you build up a lot of influence in one place so that you can purchase some high-powered cards. You can also set up combos where you pick up cards from a village just to put them back in again to draw more cards to earn reroll tokens. While I admit that may not be as thematic as other amounts of the game, it is a really neat system, and there's some eureka moments when first playing about how, wait, if I, there's no French on the board right now, but if I store a Mohajadin here with some weapons, I can pull them out later to do an ambush when I need it. Like, just discovering that that's part of the mechanisms of the game was very rewarding. And at the root, for all the education and reality, uh, harsh reality, that this game brings to the table... It is still a game, and with that come certain systems that will and can play out within the mechanisms used for the game. Another thing I did appreciate is cooperation is key to winning the Red Bernus. The French have three different armies coming in through three different mountain passes, all basically surrounding your villages. While each army deploys one at a time, you never know where the first two are going to come on the map. This makes it hard to build up defenders because you don't know where you're going to need them, which leads to lots of player interaction working together to move defenders where they're needed, sometimes at literally the very last minute. And something I didn't mention in the rule summary is another big aspect of play is that almost everything in this game is in limited supply. There are only so many weapon cards in play. There are only so many sharpshooters you recruit. And there's only 12 reroll tokens that have to be shared by all the players. Do this, you have to watch out for hoarding. Like, usually you play a game like this, and you just want to buy the best thing for you every turn. But you don't want one player building all the defenses so no other player can defend their villages, or having someone put out all the Mahajadines, which are even more powerful troops that can't be moved. Not a game where you want to split up the different tasks then. Everyone needs to share everything and deal with the invasion as a unified people. Correct. Now, the automata system for the French works well. Uh, the rules make it very clear how the French army deploys, how they act when they deploy, when they retreat. Though these are some of the most complicated rules in the game, the most fiddly bits, so it may take some rereading. Just be sure to take everything you read in the rules, literally. It's all there. You might have to read it a couple times to note the idiosyncrasies, but every time I had a rule question, the answer was in the book. It just took some rereading to get to. Now, next, we're going to get into some of the potential pitfalls of this as a game. Yeah. So one of the things that may turn people off this game is its reliance on dice. This is more of a thematic dice chucker than a Euro game. This is a D6 driven war game after all, and conflicts are determined by rolling D6 and looking up at the results on a table. The table indicates which French units act first during a counterattack, the number of hits caused on what rolls, and the order casualties must be taken for both sides. Now, each unit type in the game is completely different from others. For example, the French cannons only hit on a 5 or 6, but do two hits on a 6. Algerian sharpshooters actually hit on a 3 or higher, but only ever do one damage and so on. Earning reroll tokens before going into a battle is a must in this game, to help offset the vagaries of the dice. But remember, the supply of those tokens is limited, so make sure one player doesn't hoard them all. And another note that's really important in this is the French armies don't run out. Your Algerian, when you lose a cube off the board, it is removed from the game, never to be recruited again, where the French just keep coming. Yeah, while there is no question there is an element of randomness in war, all your plans go out the window when shooting starts, after all. That is often a huge turnoff for some players. Now, the other thing I do want to talk about is the difficulty level of the Red Burnus. So I expect cooperative games to be hard. I really do. I expect them to be very difficult. You shouldn't win every time, or even the majority of times when playing a co-op to me. 
I find that the most fun cooperative games are the ones where you get really close to winning. Like, you're almost there. You can see the light at the end of the tunnel, and you fail. And it leaves you with that, we are so close, let's play again, let's try again, we've got to do it. That, to me, is what makes Pandemic such a big hit. Unfortunately, the Red Burnus hasn't quite found that perfect balance, and that balance is widely affected by the player count. At two players in particular, using the rules as written, we fed the, found the Red Burnus was far too easy. We haven't lost a game yet. And we've been able to call the games a few turns before the end because there's no way the French would ever even be able to reach our villages. So like, yeah, there's three turns left, but they'd have to move four spots to even reach us. As long as there's not a move double card in the deck, and we know there's not because we've already seen all of them, they can't even win. And in almost every game we played two-player, once it happened, the third army never even deployed because we just kept ambushing them and sending the other armies retreating. So they just keep, the first two armies would keep coming out. Now, I did note this to the designer. The first thing he said is you're obviously experienced co-op players. We do find the game, if people are good at co-op games and good at working together, it can be too easy. And well, Deanna and I play a lot of games together. So yes, we probably qualify as being good at cooperative games. Um, I What he then suggested, and I suggest put in some sliders, put in some stuff to make the game more difficult. So the first thing he recommended was have the French players go after each turn. And that turned this into a real game. That made things a real challenge. Now, we've still won every time we've used it this way, but we have had to retreat, and there were definitely battles where if the dice didn't go our way, it was over. So I strongly recommend if you were going to play two-player, use this um, variant way to play. So it's interesting to see it work this way, as often one will find the opposite, where yep. higher counts uh, are what makes things easier. Yeah, I think it's, again, it's how often the French get to act before something happens. Now, with three players, by the proper rules, this is all three players go, then the French go. It was definitely tenser than two. All three French armies did manage to hit the board. And there were some tight battles near the beginning of the game. I, in one game, we did have to have someone retreat. But by the time we got past the halfway point of the game, by the time most of us had improved our decks, and while we realized that we shouldn't be hoarding the uh, reroll tokens and make sure they go to the people who are actually going to face the French, the French really didn't stand a chance. Now, what I will say is four players is where this game shined. Here we finally found the tension I expect to find in a cooperative board game. Things start tense and never easy. Every victory founds, feels like it was fought for, and numerous times battles came down to a die roll or two. And to be honest, at this point, we've lost every game we played with four. But we always felt like we had a chance, that we could have done something better, we could have distributed something better, we should have made the defenses higher here. Now, what I do know, and this is a very good thing, in my prototype this doesn't exist, but I do know a sliding difficulty scale will be something included in the production copy of this game. Uh, the various sliders that the designer has mentioned to me is what I already mentioned with how often the French can act. Removing your village abilities. So when Sean asked earlier if they're asymmetric, yes, every village has something that it does. Removing those. And then finally, removing the hero abilities. With all three of these options, you should be able to tweak the game to make it enjoyable not only at different player counts, but to keep it challenging as you learn to master the game. Because I will say, we played much better in our fifth game than we did in our first game. Especially getting used to that whole being able to put cards in the village mechanic. It's good to see plans are already in the work to compensate for potential perceived flaws in that pre-production version. I know it's interesting, uh, you talk about the French acting um, delayed by however many turns, when in so many games, uh, you'll see that that, that opponent, the 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 game acts against you at the beginning of every turn, uh, yes. which is, again, why, why more players is often worse. <laughs> 
Yes. Yeah, I, I wouldn't want to play it four players with the French acting every turn. I think that would be extremely overwhelming, at least based on our experiences so far. Now, my only other complaint about this game is based on my prototype copy is the current card design. Um, I already mentioned the clarity of the resource icons, how they could be color-coded and made bigger. The other thing is this thing where card designers like to put the card name and the stuff it does in the middle. And I think this is just like a holdover to Magic the Gathering. Like you want card art, then rule, text, and then, or sorry, then, you know, resources. And then at the bottom, you have your, your text. They're currently, everything's in the middle of the card. And I strongly suggested to the designer that they move them to the top or the bottom. And all that's for is when you're placing cards in your village. Because I want to be able to stack my cards so that I can either show the top or the bottom so I can see what resources those cards generate. So I know I want to pick them up when to go shopping with. Again, a minor quibble, but it'd be nice to have them slightly redesigned. Yeah, it's often how how uh, it's odd how often games do this. Because there are really only so many ways one holds, plays, or stacks cards. And none of them expose the middle of the card. Yeah. I, I'm not sure where that started. Like I said, I picture magic cards, but like the whole put the block of text here, just put it at the bottom of the top. Now, another improvement I would like to see, though, again, this is pretty minor, is a way to track the five resources. So, again, you got five resources you're generating when you're when you're going shopping with your cards and you get two purchase actions and each card. Some generate three different resources. So we actually found we were spending a lot of time trying to figure out how much we had to spend each turn, especially after buying something. So it was, it was just a little noise like, all right, so I have six influence and four warfare and two food and a weapon and a tool. What's a Mohajadeen cost? Okay, it costs four influence and four what? Wait, what? Did I, okay, wait, no, I have four weapons and I have, wait, where's my influence? Okay, there's my influence. All right, I buy that. I put a cube out. All right, now, how much influence can I afford a fake thing? Wait, no, I already used that. You can kind of see how that thought process. I would like some way to track. Yeah, indeed. Well, in games with two resources, the sort of more standard deck builder, I often find when they do include counters to track the resources, completely extraneous. Uh, there are yeah. so many games where you've, they've got tokens there, but unless you're, you know, storing them up between turns, you never even touch them. You just put your cards down and say, I got six to spend. What am I going to buy? Uh, but when you have five resources, that's not something yeah. most people can keep in their head. Yeah, they like said minor quibble. I, it's not a bad thing, but it would be nice to have some kind of tracker. I don't know if that'll make the final copy, but if it does and you appreciate it, you can thank me. <laughs> now, something else I do want to note, right? We've been talking about this. Sean's mentioned how involved this game is and how much of a war game it actually is. Don't let that scare you away. This is not a big, heavy, long war game with lots of rules presented see Section 3.16C. There's no terrain types and combat modifiers. You don't have to worry about hex sides. This is actually one of the lightest war games I've actually played. But that's not to say it's a light game. This isn't a gateway game, and it does assume you're already familiar with the basics of deck building. To me, this falls in that medium weight game, possibly leaning a bit towards heavy, especially designed for semi-experienced players. I, I would not throw this down as someone's first deck building experience or someone's first wargaming experience. Well, there you have it. We'll see where it lands on the weight scale once it gets into more people's hands. Overall, I have to say I'm very impressed by the Red Bernus Algeria 1857. This is a very cool new way to use the deck building mechanic and combine it with many elements of a traditional wargame. The setting that was chosen is a fascinating one, and I love the fact you're fighting against the colonizers and not the other way around. 
This game did what a good historical game should do, and got me to actually do some research on my own about the Algerian Revolution, and I greatly appreciated the historical references that were included in the game. I'm very impressed by how well they're tied to the mechanics of the Red Bernus as well. I haven't even played the game yet, and yet I still spend a good chunk of time deciphering nearly legible French scrawl from an artist's work from the period. If you love deck building games and want to see something new, something totally new being done with it, the, the, the classic mechanic of deck building, check this game out. Check out the Red Bernus. The whole ability to store cards on the table, only to pick them up and use them when you need them, is something I would love to see more people use. Like, build off this. I want to see more games using this mechanic. I want to see a future deck builder using this, perhaps in a slightly less depressing setting. If you're a history buff, or perhaps a history teacher, this is a great game for showcasing this particular period of history, which started with the French pacification, sorry, invasion of Algeria in 1830. The way the theme is tied to the mechanics could make for a great teaching tool, and the included historical reference is fascinating enough that it actually got me doing additional research. If you're a wargame fan, you may want to check this game out. It's definitely not your traditional hex encounter game, but it does use some mechanics you'll find familiar, like a combat resolution table. If you like your war games long, heavy, and detailed, this probably isn't the game for you. Now, as for everyone else, I suggest you give this game a look. Take, do some research, listen to the full review, maybe watch some videos. There isn't anything out there right now quite like this, and to me, that alone is an achievement. While the difficulty level could use a bit of tweaking, I found a lot to like in this historic deck-building war game. Well, that's it for our look of a prototype copy of the Red Bernus Algeria 1857. Remember that this game launches on Kickstarter on September 14th. As always, we welcome you to check out Mo's written review of the game in the review section of the blog over at tabletopbellhop.com. And now the Bellhop's Tabletop, where we look back at the games we played since last episode. Alright, since last episode's actually two weeks worth of gaming, so I've got more than I usually do, though I actually didn't get in a lot of gaming for having two weeks to do so. So the first game um, we ended up playing in the last couple weeks, actually I don't even know if these are in perfect order, but close enough, is the Hidden Games crime scene, um, the, the Maple Brook case. So the hardest thing I had with this one was trying to find it on Board Game Geek and stuff because everywhere has it listed under the U.S. name. So if you are in the U.S. and you want to check this game out, and I know most of our listeners are, you are looking for Hidden Games Crime Scene, the New Haven case. And what's interesting is I noticed some of the changes. Like, I obviously haven't seen the New Haven case, but, like, it is very localized. I talk about being localized. Like, I'm talking about Google Maps of part of BC and stuff, right? And the New Haven one I thought was funny because instead of being the local farmer's market, like the the the, the um, county fest, it's not like the county festival, it's a folk festival where the murder took place. But it's still a murder, and... and and the, the, the person who was murdered had the same name. So I thought it was interesting. And I'm, I'm like, I, I kind of want to know, because there were 10 different versions of this game out there. Like, where were they all set? I just want to know. Like, was it different festivals? Was it different fairs? Was there a hot, eat, hot dog eating contest involved all over the world? Or was that localized for North America? I would love to see what they did with this game in different things. And, like, we already reviewed it in full. If you want more information on the game, check out the review. But I got to say, I was happy with this. Like, it just, it felt good. It felt rewarding. It was fun to play. We felt smart when we finished it. And the production quality, especially compared to other games we played. Now, I'm not going to call out anything specific. But other games we've reviewed in this genre, this was just a step above all of that. 
Right. My only regret is writing on it because <laughs> I totally should have been able, like, I didn't even think of it at the time, right. right? We were just like, write on things. But I'm also so used to these things, having you burn things or cut things or fold things. And none of that was part of it, which actually big thumbs up for that. Uh, whatever they're called. I can never hidden industries. I think it's the name of the company that's putting it hidden industries. And it's that the German GBMH or whatever, right. which is their version of incorporated. Next up, that one technically came off the pile of obligation, but everything I played in this last week was off the pile of shame. These were all new to me games this week, which is pretty awesome. So, oh, these making a mess. Red Bernoulli's about to fall and kill someone. You don't, you don't want a carbonier falling on your head. All right, next we have Irish Gage. Uh, this is the Iron Rail series game, the first Iron Rail series game from Capstone Games. I got this a while ago. I had this for my birthday back in January. It has taken this long to get to the table for a couple reasons. The main one being three-player or more. And I, though the fact my kids are gamers and probably would have got it, I don't really think I'm ready to throw them on the rails heading into deeper, heavier train games. That just doesn't seem like something they'd be all that interested in. So I was left because of the pandemic with no one to play this with. So once we started hanging out with extended family again and visiting the mother-in-laws and playing with Holly and stuff, I've been now finally able to break some of these games out. But first, I want to get all the pile of obligation done, right? And at this point, we're kind of there. We've, we've, we've now played and have opinions and posted reviews or in the works of doing reviews on all the pile of obligation. So it's time to dive into the pile of shame again. Something I've actually been looking forward to doing. So this was the, the first game off the pile of shame. No one sent me a copy of this. No obligations. This is a game I wanted, got for my birthday, and I was excited to play. And man, is it good for what it is. If you like, like this is an 18xx game. We'll put it that way. It is you start the game auctioning off a stock of each railway company. On your turn, you then put out trains for a company you own, or you auction off a new stock, or you pay dividends to everyone. Like like that. It it, it it's all of that. All of this is summarized on one page, two side. All of the rules. And the second side is just a little corner. So it's it's it, they could have, if they just shrunk the font a bit, made it one page. And I noticed online they call it one page of rules. So it's one page, two-sided. And it plays in less than an hour. And I'm just amazed that this happened. That they managed to distill a train game, like a heavy economic train game, down to one page of rules, both-sided, and a one-hour play. It is so well done. Now, this is a winsome game that was originally published in, uh, I think it's 2014. I may be wrong on that. That was actually released at Gen Con. So the, the Winsome Train Games is, is like one dude who makes train games in his garage. Put out these games to be played specifically at Gen Con in 2014. Well, this is Capstone Games taking that. Um, up, updating the rules. I don't know how much. And while giving it to Ian O'Toole to say, make this look good. And well, it's Ian O'Toole. And no, it's not pretty, but it is so functional. It is so clear. Like Ian did such a great job of making it clear which hexes are difficult to rain and which aren't. Super simple to learn, really fascinating to play. We've only played once. Um, the economy is definitely there. Um, the the players I played against made the mistake of letting me get all the shares in one company. And then while well, I managed to do the hard-to-do thing where I connected to the three major Irish cities, which gave me a bonus dividend, which won me the game. And while well, I beat D at a heavy game, so that part <laughs> made me feel good. But this is all. Like, like for a long time, Chicago Express was my... If you may like train games and I kind of want to show you what they're about, we're going to show you this. Now that's going to swap over to Irish Cage. My only problem is the first action in the game is an auction and you have no clue. 
Like, I, I, I think you're going to have to play 10 games before you find out what a fair value for any of these companies are. And the thing is, it's going to change depending on who you play with. Because certain people are going to value something. Like, for new players, sitting down, me, Deanna, and Brenda to play this, we're like, ah, I started $7. I go to 12 Like, we, we had no clue. Right. Which is something we'll learn over time. Well, and again, that's part of the whole 18xx thing is understanding and knowing the economies uh, that happen. Yeah. Now, I do applaud them for having things like doing the math for you for the dividends, even though at most we're dividing by three. So it's not like it was hard, but it was nice to have it right there. On yeah, the no, I have to say. That's part of the thing that scares people. Looking looking at the unboxing video again the other day while I was editing it, it really is kind of amazing how simplified a complex game, because it's not an easy, it's, I mean, it's not an easy, straightforward no. game. And yet they've they've presented it in such a simplified manner in order to make it accessible. Not easy but accessible to learn. Yes. No, I totally agree. One page of rules. Oh, yeah, that was... I like, 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 how do you... I don't have very many... Out of my collection of thousands of games, how many games have one page of rules that aren't like Monopoly? Yeah. It, it blows me away. And it works. Like, it, it's not like I wanted to then look up stuff online. It's all there. It's just so succinct. So so props to Capstone Games for that one. I know what it's... The bad part is now I want to buy the other two games in the Iron Rail series just to see if they're just as good. And I bet you they are. Sticking with the train theme, uh, the night we played Irish Gage, I also brought Yardmaster. Now, we've recommended Yardmaster a few times, and, and in a way, I was kind of cheating, because all I had personally played is Yardmaster Express. Local gamer um, Jamie, or not Jamie, sorry, John Salila, brought out Yardmaster Express, and I really liked it. When I liked that, I went and did the research, and I read about Yardmaster, and I swear I've seen it played. Though I hadn't played it myself, and I'm like, oh, I, I want more than Express. Express, a quick drafting game, uses some of the same mechanics, but it's a little too quick. I want some more meat. And I did my research and found out, I'm like, yeah, it looks like a like Yardmaster. So when Sean Hamilton, not Sean from Hamilton, was purging his game collection at one point because he was forced to move, I picked up his copy of Yardmaster off him. Now that is set on the pile of shame for probably three years at this point. But I finally got it out and finally played it. And yes, it is. I, I don't feel bad about recommending it, though I hadn't played it. Now that I've played it, it's actually even better than I thought. This is a train-themed game, just to try to keep some people happy out there, where you are buying train cards to add them to your growing cargo train. The way you buy them is by collecting cargo types. And there's five different cargo types. And it's really simple. Discard three cargo types to buy a number two card. And that like three yellow cargo, throw away three yellow resources to buy a three yellow train. Like that simple. If you want to buy a four blue train, you throw away four blue resources. It's a, it's a, a, a floating market with, I think, four cards up that you can buy from. And that part's really simple. You're a ticket to ride, right? In addition, every player has one resource they can trade two for one. And one of the actions is actually switch which resource that is. So you can like steal the chip from another player and take your theirs and you get your own. So there's that neat bit. Then buying the cars, the way it works is your first car is free. You just attach it to your engine. But then every car after that has to be either the same color or the same number as the car that's already there. But you can buy any car. And if you do, they go in your train yard, but they don't attach to your train. But if later you can get it so it matches your train, all that stuff from your train yard then attaches on. And I picture all the trains shunting to do this, right? Well, you can set up some really cool combos with that, where you're like, yeah, yeah, one, 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 three. But down here, I've got three, three, four, blue, blue, yellow, blue, blue, red, four. And you're like, boom, 18 points in one turn. And that's really rewarding. The goal in the game is it's a race to a set number of points based on the number of players. And again, there's train cars one through four in four different colors with four ones, three, three twos, 
two one two twos and one four. No, I did that wrong. Two threes. There's a bunch of numbers. Whatever, opposite. Yeah, there are four ones and one four, and they, they, they spread between them. This is one I am looking forward to bringing out to public play events. This is one of those ones where it's going to get the, the feel-good moments and the, and the screw-you moments of I you bought the thing I wanted and the I took away your tokens so you don't have enough actions and stuff. Really solid card game. Next up. Next, I have Groovy Graves, which I, in a way, almost didn't remember I owned. Um, there was a local gamer who was purging her collection, and I got a significant number of games off them. And there's a pile of them, and I was, I'm was i slowly starting to work through those and trying out the games. And some are going to go into our Extra Life auction, some I might use for giveaways, and others I'm going to keep. Groovy Graves, we only played once, so I haven't decided where it's going yet, is a fantasy-themed domino game in a way it has domino like cards that are two things on them and it's graves for fantasy races you're playing grave diggers in a fantasy realm where there's constant battles between the races each tile except they are cards is a grave for one thing on one side and a grave for another or a grave digger and a grave and there's five different types there's like unicorns fairies goblins i I can't remember the various different ones but there's five different fantasy races you're digging graves of every turn you're going to play two cards one goes in your personal plot which is at most a three by three area when you play the cards you can overlap them any way you want here which is kind of interesting but you can't ever bury a gravekeeper they have to be on the top of the pile which kind of makes sense in addition, your second play goes into a public grave that everyone's building at once. You have to cover over one grave with one half of your card. The other half has to be on the table. So you're always expanding that center grave. After playing your new cards, you're going to draft new ones to replace them. And then you have a choice to score. You pick one of the grave types and then get points based on how many contiguous graves of that color or type there are, both in your uh, private plot and the central plot. Now, you get them based on, like, the like the lowest limit is you have to have 8 connecting, and that gives you, like, 1 point, and then there's this points for 10, and then 12, and then 15 connecting. Now, the trick is you can each score each of these grave types once the entire game. So once you score blue, you can't score blue again. And once you score purple, you can't score that again. Now, the game ends when the first player scores all five types, or the deck runs out. Really simple. Great use of overlapping cards, right? Playing cards on top of other cards. Tons of take that, playing the thing to break up the pattern so the opponent can't have it. And wow, are those grave diggers important? Like trying to get those into the right place, especially on your personal grave. Really neat game, great graphics, amusing theme. This is another one, though. I, I've only played two player, and I think it's really going to shine with more. With two players, it was a little too take that. It was a little too screw you, screw you, screw you. And then it was a little too easy for, well, you've already scored this, so I can just go build this off in the corner, and there's nothing you can do about it, and get it all the way up to 15. Right. So I think this one's going to need more players to really shine, but it was fun even with two. Awesome. And finally, the Red Bernouse 1857, which we just reviewed in detail, so I don't have a lot to say about it. Except I need you to try this, just because it's so different from any other deck builder. Like, like, just to experience mechanically what they did is so neat and so well done. Plus the whole board game aspect of it, the folk on a map aspect, just because of how different it is from, say, Tyrants of the Underdark. Right. Just, just to see a totally new way of doing it. And I'd still admit I love the theme. I like the historical period. I like that they picked a period where a woman was the hero and the fact that you play the colonized, not the colonizers. All that's really appreciated and tied to a very solid game. So I actually, I, I 
hit them with a shoot games. Good luck on this project. Um, I see a lot of people talking about it. People I've shared some pictures and I've had people like, Ooh, I'm excited about this. Tell me about it. I'm hoping it does well for you. Excellent. Uh, and I'm looking forward to playing that, uh, when I'm down in a couple of weekends, uh, myself, I've been playing a masks game, uh, online. We've switched over to a play by post format and I'm actually playing in this one, not running this one. Uh, so I've got my, uh, bull, uh, uh, playbook that I am playing in that. Uh, Sounds good. Well, how about a look ahead? What do you have planned for the coming weeks? Well, like I said, we're we're the pile of obligation does have a few things in it, but it's things like I have to build some box inserts, right? Uh, we do have a couple games we need to play. One I still have to unbox, but I am looking forward to finally hammering through some of the games on the pile of shame. Like I, when Terry gave me a, a section of her collection to, to work through and figuring out what's in that pile, and I've got games I've owned for far too long that haven't gotten played. Maybe I can finally convince Deanna to play one of her Elf Quest games. I, I'm just to be honest, I'm it feels like a weight's off my shoulders. I'm looking forward to playing games just to play games and not having to worry about having things done on a set timeline as much anymore now that said i have reached out to good games publishing to hopefully review their latest game and i i will be probably trickling in some new games to play but i think we're going to take a little bit of a step back from the obligation maybe even cut back to getting the web the, the, the podcast down to an hour and a half show and only doing one one review a show anymore we'll see but i expect our we can review to get longer where I'll be talking about more variety of games and different game types. Right. Uh, and me, I'm getting tied up. I, uh, I decided to run uh, another supers game after my last one uh, sort of trickled to an end. Uh, I'm using the amazing heroes game that I've talked about based off of amazing tales. Uh, and it's just such a lightweight system, which makes it great for an online format, like a play by post format. Uh, my, my one ridiculous thing is I ended up, finding eight players. Um, so it's going to be a big supers team to try and, and manage and wrangle. Uh, so I'm taking, uh, we've got everyone up and running and we're going through all the, uh, the session zero safety stuff right now and establishing lines and veils. And then uh, hopefully this weekend uh, I, I will start throwing some posts in there because we need to find uh, unlike masks. I'm not starting with that. The, the team already, you know, fully formed, so we're going to do okay. team development and team integration as the uh, sort of initial setting. Uh, and with eight players uh, of a quite wide variety of types, like we got a really nice blend of different super tropes, essentially. Right. Um, you know, we don't have, you know, three Batman or anything like that. It's, it's, it's a really right. nice spread, uh, some really creative people. And I'm looking forward to uh, seeing how that goes and, and staying on my toes uh, the, the fact that we're not doing sessions and we're doing, we're doing this one play by post as well allows me to, uh, step back a little bit and not have to rush, you know, rush out information when someone hits me with something I wasn't expecting. So playing in a game and running a game and, and two different systems. systems. I actually, two I, hadn't, systems, I, hadn't, yes. I hadn't thought of that. Essentially our, our mask team had been quiet for a couple of days as I was setting up this new, uh, this new system in, on the discord and all of a sudden the masks game kind of woke up again and, and we started getting a little bit of interaction and I'm like, Oh crud, I need to start thinking about my playbook. Uh, so I do actually have a paper print out of my, my yep. playbook so that when I, when I open up that discord server, I can bring that over and, and get in the right mindset. Uh, and nice. it'll probably be a notebook for 
my game because again, eight players, that's a lot of stuff to keep track of. That is that is a lot. <laughs> Good luck with that. Alrighty. Now a quick shout out and a thank you to some of our VIP guests, our Patreon backers. We greatly appreciate their support. Brian Kurtz. Thanks, Brian. Yuho Rutila. Thanks for today's question. Sorry that the pandemic delayed our response. Jeff Seuss. Thanks, Jeff. Kevin Renault. Thanks, Tech. And Timothy Smith. Thank you. Well, that was the double bell. That means my shift's coming to an end, and we're going to have to lock those front doors. So the doors to the lobby are closed. You can always find us all over the web and social media as Tabletop Bellhop, one word. You can visit our website at tabletopbellhop.com, find our podcast on your podcatcher of choice, and you can sign up for our newsletter at newsletter.tabletopbellhop.com for weekly updates. As always, links down below. And, of course, there is also Patreon.com slash TabletopBellhop, where we would graciously appreciate your support, where people get access to awesome things like our Discord channel, access to online gaming, which is something that will be coming soon, as well as things like bonus audio and more. That wraps up the time we have for the show tonight. For the lobbyists, thanks for joining us, and be sure to stick around and join us in the penthouse suite for the after show, and don't forget, stop by Sundays for brunch. For Tabletop Bellhop Gaming Podcast, I'm Sean. And I'm Mo. Thank you. And, and game, game on. on. Find full reviews, show notes, and more at tabletopbellhop.com. Graphic design by Brian Weiss at RPG & Co. Music is Nimbus by Evening Land. The podcast is released under a Creative Commons attribution license. <laughs>